we get our ideas about aliens and potential alien life from Hollywood. We get it from popular entertainment, from TV, sometimes from music, I guess, from comic books, but especially cinema and especially Hollywood cinema. Ladies and gentlemen, you know- It seems that, you know, audiences really stand very little chance now against this um, alien invasion of our popular culture. It's an overlooked area, Hollywood's representations of UFOs. I think most people kind of push it to the sidelines in the field of, of, of UFO research because it is seen as, as a bit trivial. But actually, I think that uh, people really need to start looking at it much, much more closely because as the world changes with regard to UFOs, we can look to Hollywood's representations over the years and really probably pick apart how our expectations and perceptions have been formed and then, in turn, hopefully gain a greater understanding of what we're actually presented with. That's what they're doing. I'm convinced of it, and it's happening around the world. And it's happening everywhere but America because they can't do it because they're in this really bad situation. I mean, to be honest, what I've just said to you is as explicit and bold as I've ever been on this subject. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Benal of BenalofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 7. I cannot believe it has been almost a month since you last heard from me, folks. I apologize heartily for that. Just a slew of off-site work fell into my lap unexpectedly since the last edition of the program. So I had to kind of put BOA on the back burner while I took care of business. Trust me, in the long run, it is what has to be done to keep the entire BOA franchise going into the distant future. With all that said, let's get cooking on this edition of the program. We are going to examine the connection between Hollywood, UFOs, and the government with our guest, doctoral candidate Robbie Graham, creator of the critically acclaimed and massively popular website, Silver Screen Saucers. Over the course of our conversation, we are going to discuss how Hollywood shapes the public perception and expectations of the UFO phenomenon and ETs. We'll learn how pervasive Robbie feels the government's intervention is in UFO entertainment, And we'll hear about how the DOD and the CIA work with filmmakers and Hollywood studios to advance differing agendas. Plus, we'll talk about the rise in UFO films in the last decade and ponder what that might mean for the population's mindset regarding the phenomenon and whether it's part of a larger campaign to prepare us for eventual first contact. In total, it is an engrossing conversation which peels at the layers of our collective constructed reality and peers into the abyss of the UFO enigma with a profound student of the phenomenon, Robbie Graham. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Robbie Graham, please allow me to provide you with a little background on him. 
Robbie Graham is a doctoral candidate at the University of Bristol for a Ph.D. examining Hollywood's historical representations of UFOs and potential extraterrestrial life. As a freelance writer and lecturer, his work emphasizes the industrial, cultural, and political processes by which Hollywood's UFO movie content is shaped, as well as the impact of these movies on popular perceptions of the UFO phenomenon. He holds a master's degree with distinction in cinema studies from the University of Bristol and a first-class honors degree in film, television, and radio studies from Staffordshire University. He has appeared on BBC Radio, Coast to Coast AM, and Canal Plus TV. Additionally, his articles have appeared in a variety of publications, including The Guardian, New Statesman, Film Facts, Fortean Times, Ad Busters, and the peer-reviewed Journal of North American Studies, 49th Parallel. His website is www.silverscreensaucers.com. Pretty simple, all one word, Silver Screen Saucers. Dot com. Check it out. Before I unleash this episode on you, want to give you just a quick heads up that we had another Skype issue with this episode. Robbie Graham was on Skype during the first 10 minutes of the show, but was breaking up quite a bit, so I switched him over to a landline as expeditiously as possible. So if you're tuning in and you're finding yourself frustrated, with the connection at the very beginning, just sit tight because we get it all straightened out within the first 10 minutes of the conversation. With all that said, let's get down to business and rock and roll. This interview was recorded on July 12, 2012. Robbie Graham talking about the Hollywood UFO connection on BOA Audio Season 7. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of BOA Audio Season 7. This time on the program, it's going to be one fascinating conversation for you folks. I am really looking forward to it. As many of the longtime listeners know, I'm kind of jaded about UFOs, but I've kind of still have an interest in some of the more interesting subsections, if you will, subsets, genres. And our guest really has carved out an amazing niche in that regard. He's the man behind Silver Screen Saucers, the very popular website, and he's also writing a book based on his work at Silver Screen Saucers. And he's also a doctoral candidate at the University of Bristol, which is tremendous because, you know, you're a young guy and you're pursuing this and you're about to become a doctor. It's, uh, we need more people like you. We need more people in intelligentsia to get behind this. So it's exciting in that regard as well. He is, of course, Robbie Graham coming to us direct from the UK. Robbie, welcome to BOA Audio. Thanks, Tim. Great to be here. Now, we usually start off with the bio, the background. You know, who is Robbie Graham? I kind of teased some of that here in the introduction. But, you know, tell us more about you, where you came from, and, you know, how you got an interest in the UFO subject. Oh, uh, well, uh, I suppose I've been interested in UFOs since my teens, since, my, since I was about 14. Um, I've always been interested in weird and wonderful subjects, but um, I suppose I just got sucked into the UFO thing uh, in the mid-90s, um, just as it was starting to explode into popular culture in a big way, uh, with the X-Files, of course, and uh, and, and the a plethora of movies that was uh, that were released by Hollywood uh, during the mid to late 90s and uh, I became very interested and I bought all the books and 
uh, Timothy Good, Nick Redfern, and all of the you know all of the American authors as well. Yeah. And uh, I, as a teenager, you don't really know how to how to make sense of it, how to comprehend it, but it sure is fascinating. And ultimately, it becomes quite frustrating because you think, well, what the hell can I do about it? <laughs> Not a lot, <laughs> yeah. um, especially when you're 15, 16 years old. So I kind of lost interest after. Well, I didn't lose interest, but I kind of got frustrated with it, and life got in the way. And exactly, I carried on with school and went to college and university. But as, as actually, when I was in college, uh, about 17, 18 years old, uh, my grandparents, uh, who lived uh, very close to me, um, uh, to, to where I used to live with my parents, um, they saw. Uh, well, they, they they told me after the fact that they had spent two hours watching three brightly lit disc-shaped objects performing all sorts of fantastical aerial maneuvers uh, over a field probably half a mile behind where I lived. Oh, wow. I could say they were looking at it from their, looking at this display uh, from their window sort of past, past my family's house. So had they called me and said, Robbie, look out the window, I would have probably seen what they'd have, what they'd have witnessed. But for some <laughs> bizarre reason, they didn't. And uh, I learned of this after the fact, and I was just completely gutted that they hadn't contacted me. But um, they had never had any interest at all in UFOs, no knowledge of the subject. Um, so anyway, so they, yeah, so this, this really captured my imagination again. Um, and I, I spent a long time talking to them about it. I kind of wrote a report just for my own, you know, uh, for my own reference based on what they'd said. Um, and my granddad, who, who is no longer with us, um, he, he told me that this was the most amazing thing he'd ever witnessed in his entire life. Um, and that was coming from someone who, you know, lived through World War Two and yeah, wow. fought, in, you know, and he'd seen some amazing things in his life. And he said that this was just absolutely out of, well, literally out of this world. And um, so I just thought, gosh, and, and so I kind of got stuck back into it. So I started to do research again, read all the new books, and uh, and anyway, uh, it was at this point that I really started to become obsessed with film more generally, and uh, and I started to pursue it academically. And I did uh, a couple of film studies degrees at university, and um, and then the UFO kind of UFO interest never really died away, and so the the film and the UFOs naturally merged as the two obsessions of my life, <laughs> and uh, so it seemed only natural that I start to start to uh, apply film uh, film studies to the UFO subject and, and and vice versa, and so uh, that's where the the PhD has uh, has come from, and uh, that's what I'm currently currently working on right now. Yeah, that's really interesting in a sense because I would be concerned, I guess, I don't know, here in America, be, to pursue my PhD with any sort of connection to UFOs. Is there any sort of blowback on that, or, or it seems like they, it seems like they're letting you go ahead with it. But you know, what's what's the what's the reaction of others in uh, you know in the collegial sphere? Well, you know, I was very shocked when they accepted my proposal. To be honest, um, I, I didn't think that it would get through just because you know. As you point out, historically academia has been uh, very um, well. It's, it's wanted nothing to do with the UFO yeah. subject, really. And um, so, I, 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 to a certain extent, I had to kind of dress up my proposal in in a lot of cultural and film, um, and extraordinarily um, uh, objective to the point of uh, debunkery about the subject in order to actually get it in yeah. uh, and have it accepted. 
Um, so, but but at the same time, um, I've slowly started to to uh, speak with my supervisors. I've got two supervisors because my PhD is actually split between two departments because it's quite, it's a cross departmental uh, PhD because it deals with both cultural studies and cultural uh, studies, which are distinct areas uh, in academia. And um, so that's made it slightly more difficult as well because I'm having to justify I worked not one supervisor but to two. Um, uh, but it's going, it's going, it's going well, and um, they are not enormously resistant to my ideas. Um, I'm managing to get it down. I'm getting the PhDs. They take a long time. Uh, I'm currently uh, on a requested uh, 12-month leave from the university um, because uh, I'm currently writing up a version of the PhD, which will be my book, um, Silver Screen Sources, Sorting Fantasy in Hollywood's UFO Movies, and that, as I say, will be a popular version of the PhD, um, uh, and uh, I want to get that done ASAP. I thought I found it interesting. I noticed uh, when you were doing the background in your bio there that you must be about the same age as me, because I was a teenager during the 90s as well, so you must be like in your early 30s or so? I'm 31. All right. You're younger than me. Wow. I should have gone and got my doctorate, man. Look, what did I? I wasted all this time. <laughs> so, all right. oh, I, I, would, I wouldn't recommend it. It's not the most, it's not the most fun thing in the world, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> it's from we had some breakage there. I, I figure and assume I'll be able to clean most of it up. But for the people, if we if we don't get an exact uh, you know clean up on that, what you were saying is that this PhD had to get approved by two different people in the university and kind of had to slant it a little bit in the, I guess, negative way towards UFOs. And can that change over time? Are they are they open to that evolving, or are you under pressure now to to tell it how he told them you were going to tell it, if you will? Um, I, I do have a certain amount of freedom to, to kind of work it the way I want it. Uh, ultimately, it's my project, and I will ultimately write what I want to write, but that doesn't mean that at the end of the day they're going to approve what I write. However, uh, yeah, whatever I write is not to be uh, declaring the reality of, of you know, extraterrestrial visitation by any means. It will be extraordinarily um, skeptical, um, but without being a bulletin piece. Um, it will be extremely objective, shall we say, um, as it should be. Um, so, Yes, I, I've got a certain amount of freedom uh, with what I can write. I am being supported by my supervisors, uh, but it's just a struggle to communicate to them um, the, the nuances of the subject because they have absolutely no grounding in it whatsoever, which is not surprising. So it is it is a bit a bit of a struggle. But then, you know, anyone doing a PhD uh, has a, has a difficult time because it's not an easy thing to do. Uh, you're under an immense amount of scrutiny. Um, you have to justify everything you do, every statement you make, every piece of work you submit, and uh, it's a long, drawn-out process. So, um, as I say, I'm, I'm currently on a, a one-year requested leave from the PhD, which is going to prolong the process even further because I asked to take a year off in order to be able to write up uh, a populist version of the PhD into into the book that I'm that I'm working on the Silver Screen Sources book, um, which I hope to have completed by uh, spring of next year. Now, did I hear you say that? Now, because you broke up a little bit on me there, uh, and I was gonna—it was right at the interesting part. I thought it's okay. Um, that this this thesis is going to be skeptical without being a debunking piece. So, I guess tell me more about that because I find that interesting. Is this a conclusion you've come to, and skeptical about what? 
it's not saying skeptical. I'd say it's, it's extremely objective, which it, as it should be. You know, yeah. um, it's a piece of academic, piece of academic work, and it's uh, it's not making it's it's not speculative uh, in the slightest. Um, everything I say has to be backed up with very uh, solid facts from reputable sources. Um, so, but it, it's not so much uh, about taking a stance on the reality, on the nature, shall we say, of the UFO phenomenon, um, although ultimately that comes through. Uh, someone reading the thesis would ultimately get the impression that I do put a lot of credence in the idea that UFOs are of non-human origin. Uh, that will come through in the PhD. Um, and, uh, and I, you know, there's a lot of evidence that I present to back that up as well. So, but it's not about UFOs per se, it's about Hollywood's representations right. of the UFO phenomenon and the idea of extraterrestrial life. So it's looking at how Hollywood shapes our perceptions and expectations of potential extraterrestrial visitation, of first contact. Uh, of the UFO phenomenon and how that might be tied in with this with this idea. So those are the ideas it explores and it adopts cultural and, and film studies approaches. So will the PhD then also tie in the government part of uh, this whole Hollywood influence or is it just a strict telling of the Hollywood portrayal of UFOs without getting into sort of the more consp- I guess you could call it conspiratorial angles. Uh, yeah, you know. that's how I term it. Yeah. Um, yeah. As I say, what, what the PhD will do and what the book will do is tell the story of UFOs, of the public's interest in the phenomenon and of the government's interest in the phenomenon. It will tell that story through film, through Hollywood's representations of the phenomenon and through Hollywood's uh, uh, depictions of potential extraterrestrial life because pretty much uh, over the years is what you've had is uh, all aspects of, of ufology being represented on screen because what Hollywood does, I've found, is it, uh, it's parasitic towards ufology. Yeah. It sucks on the veins of ufology because it uses all of these very rich ideas uh, in UFO literature, UFO debate from online, from, from the wealth of literature that's been written over the years, and it uses all of that, incorporates it into its own fictional narratives, and it spins it. Um, and it, you know, it makes for great entertainment. But what that does in the process is it, is it simultaneously fictionalizes the subject because we automatically then associate these, these ideas, which, many of which have a, a grounding in historical reality, in our lived historical reality, and many of which are, shall we say, factual. Yeah. It takes these ideas and it presents them in a fictional context, in a, especially a fantastical context in the idea, you know, in the context of a, a sci-fi film. And when it does that, it, it fictionalizes these ideas. Um, uh, you now, you could look at that as a, as a natural cultural process, um, that, that it's simply something that Hollywood scriptwriters do because it's logical to do because Hollywood um, likes to mine uh, great ideas wherever they arise. Yeah. Or you could look at it from the more conspiratorial angle and suggest, well, is there, you know, is there a game here? Is there an agenda? Uh, are intelligence agencies, government operatives, uh, deliberately confusing people through Hollywood, deliberately sowing disinformation, misinformation, uh, or propagandizing in terms of fear mongering or, uh, you know, projecting other ideas that are beneficial to, to the, to the state. Uh, is that going on? Um, and, you know, so I do look at both of those ideas in the PhD, uh, and in the book. Um, what I kind of lean towards is the idea that for the most part, what we're seeing is a natural cultural phenomenon. Um, 
Hollywood, you know, of course, is open to manipulation by um, government agencies, especially yeah. by the CIA and Department of Defense. And certainly, over the years, both of those organizations and other organizations have tweaked UFO-themed scripts, and they've censored them, they've uh, seeded them, um, but this is only in a limited way. Um, you can point to a number of productions over the years where you can say, yes, absolutely, we know, as a matter of fact, that that has occurred, and I've documented that in, in various articles, um, and others have documented it also. Um, but is it really that pervasive? Is it something where, you know, every single UFO movie that comes out has been tampered with by the elite? And the answer is no. Uh, it's just not the case. Yeah. Um, uh, what we are having is, a, is, a, is a nat- what we're seeing is a natural cultural process. Um, but that's no less interesting, really. And ultimately, the effect on our perceptions is the same, regardless of who's tampering or how it's being tampered with or how it's being affected, whether it's natural or conspiratorial. Ultimately, these films have the same effect on our perceptions of the phenomenon. And they serve to confuse us. Um, and uh, as I say, they serve to fictionalize the phenomenon through its association with spectacular entertainment, through fantastic, with, with uh, fantastical entertainment. But at the same time, uh, ironically, they, they actually serve to actualize the phenomenon as well because Hollywood really does have this unique power over us. Um, film uh, generally has this, this, this mystical power uh, where it seems to actualize um, the imaginings of you know of screenwriters and, and creatives, um, whether in Hollywood or Bollywood or Britain or any other film industry in the world, uh, it takes ideas and through their projection through this this, this you know very simple medium ultimately, uh, which is uh, you know goes back to the to the late uh, uh, 1900s. For me, cinema really is, and this is one of my main focuses in in, in my work. I, I really do think that cinema is a uniquely powerful medium, and I think that even in today's world, you know, of, of iPads and TV on demand, uh, cinema really does remain this, this wondrous, um, and as I say, almost, almost magical, mystical medium. And I think that it, it does remain so popular because what cinema offers to us, that our PCs and our Macs and our tablet devices and, you know, even our TVs don't, is this uh, an expansive, you know, communal experience. Is this uh, an opportunity, really, to, to gather in a, in a public space with dozens, uh, sometimes hundreds of other people, human beings, all of whom are essentially strangers to one another, but who, for 90 minutes at least, are united, really, on a, 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 an emotional uh, journey? And I think there is something undeniably special about that, about sitting in a darkened cinema and being able to hear a pin drop as the action unfolds around you. And... And uh, in in, uh, in the work that I'm writing, I quote the late great uh, British filmmaker Ken Russell, um, and he once said that uh, Hollywood fills the gaps in our knowledge of the world, and I think that's absolutely true, uh, and I think that also that's pretty scary uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, we take our cues uh, for reality from Hollywood. Yeah, uh, it, it, it has this very strange effect on us, and I think that that's also incentive for us to pay much closer attention to precisely what it is that Hollywood is telling us, uh, especially when it comes to a subject like UFOs, because you know we have to look at where we get our ideas from about UFOs and potential extraterrestrial life. Are scientists regularly holding conferences that are broadcast, you know, <laughs> the world? 
So, I mean, they do hold conferences, obviously, but they're very insular. They're closed off. They're usually just aimed at, a, at an academic, uh, strictly scientific audience. And occasionally there'll be brief details of those meetings and conferences um, reported in the media. But essentially, we don't have access to that. Um, we get our ideas about aliens and potential alien life from Hollywood. We get it from popular entertainment, from TV, sometimes from music, I guess, from comic books, but especially cinema and especially Hollywood cinema. Um, so, you know, if we if we were to, uh, and again, you know, and, and it, it, it makes sense because uh, UFOs are naturally cinematic. You know, these sleek, unearthly objects, they perform remarkable aerial uh, maneuvers, they, you know, they shimmer, they glow, they glide. And, and so, although they're factual, although they're based in, in our lived historical reality, UFOs are also the stuff of great science fiction. Oh yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, it's like you know, it's unsurprising that they've always sold very well at the box office. But what I find fascinating and why I think it's so important to be uh, looking at this subject right now is because uh, in the last ten years we've seen this huge explosion in the popularity of the UFO subgenre. Um, I've counted at least forty UFO movies. Um, uh, that meet my criteria of a UFO movie, and I'll go into that in a minute. They've been produced since uh, the year 2000. And you, you've had the likes of, you know, Signs, uh, War of the Worlds, Transformers trilogy, Indiana Jones, Crystal Skull, you know, Monsters vs. Aliens, The Fourth Kind, Battle Los Angeles, Cowboys and Aliens, Super 8, Prometheus, to name but a few, as I say. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, now, you know, add to that, TV series like The Event, Falling Skies, and you've got a, a, a new TV series coming out uh, probably early next year called Area 51. And so it seems that, you know, audiences really stand very little chance now against this um, uh, alien invasion of our popular culture. <laughs> I was just thinking that, that very expression, yeah. Right, so, you know, but, but <laughs> most people might say, well, so what? what? Why should we care about UFO movies? You know, they're just entertainment, aren't they? Well, yes and no. UFO movies do matter, um, you know, especially if we consider the possibility that we may one day live in what Bryce Zabel and Richard Dolan refer to as an after-disclosure world or a post-disclosure world, um, whatever form disclosure takes, you know, whatever whatever these UFOs turn out to be, there is obviously something to hide, something is being hidden, and there is information to be released. Whether it, you know, and I think it's probably fair to say that at some point we will have more access to that information. Um, now, one of the first things people will want to know after disclosure, post-disclosure, is why these, let's for now, for argument's sake, call them extraterrestrials, why these ETs are here, to issue us with a, an, a, you know, a warning and an ultimatum, like in the day the Earth stood still, you know, to, to raise our cosmic awareness and to uh, you know, welcome us into their galactic community, like in um, Spielberg's Close Encounters. You know, or are they here to, you know, to annihilate us and strip mine the earth for its resources, like in um, Emmerich's Independence Day? You know, well, we'd also probably wonder what these beings look like. You know, and, and naturally, one of the first things that pop into mind to our minds are, you know, cinematic iconography. Right, right. You're going to find it very hard to separate the reality that we're presented with from our cinematic memories, because that's all we've had. You know, that's 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 the only input really we've had about aliens is, is cinema. You know, right, when, right, right. It's like if God showed up, everyone right. would have a different opinion of <laughs> what, he, what he's supposed to look like. Well, well, we all know what God looks like. He looks like a man with a white beard. And <laughs> <laughs> so because this is it, because that's what pop culture tells us. And obviously, you know, God has been rendered that way in, in, in uh, 
you know, in artwork going back centuries. But um, right, it's like the grey alien. It sounds right, precisely. But at the same time, is that the yeah? I mean, we, there's, there's all arguments about 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 the iconography of greys, but. Um, yeah, you know, we'd wonder what these these beings look like. Uh, you know, if if this thing's piloting these crafts, then my God, why are they here? What do they look like? Do they look like predator? <laughs> <laughs> do they look like uh, uh, ET? Are they friendly? You know, are they little intergalactic gardeners? You know, maybe they're robots, like you know the Transformers. I mean, they can disguise themselves as a you know earthly technology. Yeah. You know, or maybe they're little green men, like in Invasion of the Saucer Men, or or aliens in the attic, or. or Planet 51 of the Toy Story movies, you know, um, you know, we might just think, oh my God, let's hope they're not these insectoid child snatchers of, uh, you know, falling skies <laughs> on, on TV right now. The point is, is, you know, is this good or bad, you know? Well, it depends on whether or not Hollywood's historical depictions of UFO occupants really bear any relation to the true nature and intent of the ETs or the UFO occupants themselves. And I think it goes without saying that most of Hollywood's aliens are, shall we say, not the friendliest of folk. Uh, most of them want really only to enslave, uh, you know, to, or to eat or otherwise eradicate humanity. And um, But for, a, you know, a handful of exceptions, Hollywood's aliens are these malevolent, physically monstrous creatures. And, uh, you know, their, their level of uh, technological advancement really does uh, outstrip their moral and uh, spiritual and ethical Advancement. So, yeah. well, is this is this realistic? Well, uh, I'm not quite so sure that it is. Um, I know that a lot of people would argue with me on that, but I don't think that that's necessarily um, realistic, or at least it's a very myopic perspective, shall we say? Um, overwhelmingly, Hollywood aliens are, are are monstrous and invasive, and I think that's a shame. Um, as human beings, we are imbued with this natural fear of the unknown, and obviously. You know, in a post-disclosure world, Hollywood's hordes of fearsome aliens won't really do much to calm those nerves. Um, <laughs> That's so, for sure. That, yeah, yeah. Can, let, I, let me jump in here because uh, you've said a bunch of stuff here, and I, there's, I, I had one point that I wanted to, to mention here, but then you said a whole bunch of other interesting things, and I was <laughs> so, so I was like, wait, now I want to ask him about something else. So, but let me just jump back here. It's really tremendously refreshing to hear you sort of downplay the government involvement in Hollywood in a sense because, you know, given the field of ufology, it's prone to overreaction. So it's, it, it was refreshing to hear you say that, you know, yes, it happens, but it's not like this all-encompassing thing where the government's controlling every UFO movie that comes out, which, thank you, I guess. <laughs> this is, They're absolutely not. They're absolutely not controlling every UFO movie. They... Uh, certainly take an interest, when I say they, I don't mean the, the government, but elements within the government, elements within certain organizations, uh, CIA, DOD, certainly do take an active interest in Hollywood's depictions of UFOs. For obvious reasons, they've always been interested in how the media represents the subject. Um, and, uh, you know, so we can talk about examples later on about, you know, for example, the Department of Defense's involvement in Transformers or the CIA's involvement in, in Race to Witch Mountain or the, or, or, or the CIA's influence in the, in the Cold War on various films, genre pictures, not just UFO movies, but others. And so the, there is tweaking that has gone on. There is seeding of information, censoring in some cases. Um, uh, so obviously, 
the you know the CIA, the DoD do take a very keen interest in how this subject is portrayed, not only in the news media but also in, in entertainment media. Um, but they their powers are limited. You know they can't go out and and uh, actively influence every UFO movie that comes out of Hollywood. It just it just sorry it just can't be done. It's not how the system works. And anyone who says that 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 can be done has no idea about how Hollywood actually works. Um, so. So yes, it happens, and it has happened demonstrably in quite a number of cases, but it's not all pervasive. Overwhelmingly, we are talking about a natural cultural process. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And you wonder if there's always sort of this old idea that, you know, that the government's influencing this long-term acclimation process, and that may be the case in a very skeletal way, I guess you could say, a very sort of like yeah, they just push the ball of, down the hill. I think that's a good way of phrasing it, actually. Um yeah, again, there are some very strong cases uh, that suggest that elements within the government, the military, have attempted to test the waters, shall we say, um, in terms of public reaction to, to the idea of alien contact. Um, and there are some films that support that, some, some um, case studies that support that. Um, we can go into those uh, later. I mean, we've got you know, Robert Emenegger case of, uh, of the early 70s um, and a number of other films from the 50s as well uh, that support that idea. Um, yes, yeah, so, so there have been there have been attempts, but they are isolated and scattered throughout the last 60 years. There's not a continuous effort that's going on. That sort of leads you to think on a human level, if it's, like you say, it's a cultural thing, maybe we're acclimating ourselves, if you will, to this whole UFO thing. Do you know what I mean? It's like the, the government isn't pulling the strings necessarily. We're, we're sort of waking up and, and getting acclimated ourselves to this whole thing. I think that's, again, another very, very good observation. Um, I think that uh, uh, people, it's, it's very ironic that, you know, people in, in the conspiracy community and especially in the UFO community have for years um, been extraordinarily critical um, of, uh, of, the, of the government and of establishment power structures uh, with regard to secrecy surrounding this phenomenon. And we grant the government uh, this omnipotence, this, uh, this godlike power. Um, but actually, <laughs> you know, I think there's a strong argument to be made that, that the government, obviously they, they know more uh, than, than we do um, about certain aspects of the subject, but not all, about certain aspects of it. But I think ultimately they're as clueless as we are. And uh, and I do think that to an extent there's a cover-up of ignorance. But uh, I, I think that we all need to just take a step back and say, look, government, you do what you want to do. We're going to do what we want to do. We're going to educate ourselves about this. We don't need you to disclose the information. We already know we can look at you know, 60 years worth of, of case studies, of reports, of witness testimonies, and we can start to piece together the puzzle, put, piece together the, uh, the puzzle for ourselves. We don't need you to, to spoon feed it to us. And, you know, even if you were to give it to us and disclose all of this stuff en masse, why should we believe, believe you anyway? You know, <laughs> because, yeah. you've, because you've been disinforming us and, and concealing it from us for 60 years, so why on earth would you, would you, you know, in the event of, uh, of disclosure, why on earth would what you tell us be, be true or at least be completely true? Um, and the answer is, of course, it wouldn't. And so we need to exercise caution there about, you know, just begging for disclosure and begging for the government to tell us what it knows, because ultimately, uh, I think we know as much as they do in certain respects, not in every, not in every respect, but in certain respects, we know 
we know probably more. It would be interesting, and maybe you know this, because uh, you talk about the films shaping our reality, and I, I and and also the explosion of UFO films in the last ten years. It would be interesting to see. Uh, the preponderance of disclosure scenarios that play out in these movies. Has it increased or decreased? Like I said, maybe you might know that or maybe you could speak to that because it makes me think that there is like this long-term narrative and, and maybe that this disclosure thing is, is it's sort of like the next turn in all this and that you're seeing that maybe in the movies or maybe you're not. That's, that's kind of what I'm asking here. What do you think? Were you asking if, if the disclosure scenario is, is playing out in the movies, whether or not Hollywood has started to uh, incorporate the ideas of disclosure? Right, right. Is it playing out more than it used to? Or, you know, I'm sure like in, I'm sure you can go back to the 50s where there's like a movie where the president says UFOs, you know, maybe there isn't. I don't know. That's, <laughs> I guess, because, I mean, if you think about it, you know, like Independence Day, there's the big scene where he's like, where it announces that the aliens are here and everything. You wonder... If, well, right, but don't forget, of course, in Independence Day, the aliens and that, the, the, the announcement showed up. is redundant anyway yeah. because they're <laughs> over everyone's cities. That's true. Uh, so it's a forced, so it's a forced disclosure, uh, which is an interesting scenario in itself, and, and there can be a huge discussion around that. You know, um, uh, some people suggest that the only way disclosure is going to come about is, is through a forced, you know, disclosure. It will, it will have to be a forced disclosure. Um, the, the government's hand will be forced. Uh, into revealing information about this subject because they have no other choice but to do so. Um, so, so that's interesting from that perspective. Now, in terms of Hollywood kind of really getting on board the disclosure bandwagon, not in a big way. Um, however, you can look at, of course, the TV series that came out last year, which was called um, The Event, um, which was cancelled after one series. Um, and, of course, that very heavily tapped into UFO literature and debate, uh, into Internet memes surrounding disclosure, and it really it just mined that completely yeah uh, and uh, and and it caused huge debate in the UFO conspiracy community uh, the event and everyone saying oh this is clearly a step towards disclosure uh, it could you know it could be but I, there's no other, there's no reason to suggest that it's actually not just writers who are, who are you know uh, on you know who are, who've got their finger on the pulse and who are uh, who are saying well this is great ideas this makes for great drama let's do a series about it you know all the information's out there on the internet we don't need to have special access to classified information we can just go and look at Project Camelot and get a bunch of really crazy you know ultra exciting conspiratorial ideas and just weave them into this great narrative for a TV series right um, you know that would be the most logical assumption. I'm not saying that that's definitely what happened, but, you know, that would be a logical assumption. Um, so I think that's an example of how this cultural process plays out. Um, but, no, what I find interesting, and one of the things I'm, I'm looking at in, in my uh, doctoral research is uh, how Hollywood adopts certain aspects of the subject and really goes to town with them, and it completely sidelines other aspects of the subject. Uh, to the point that they're just completely ignored. Um, so, for example, aliens in Hollywood movies are always, well, as I say, they're, they're almost always monstrous, uh, creatures. Often when they're not overtly kind of monstrous, mul multiple limbed, you know, creatures, they are the, uh, the greys. Right. And the greys are always in these films portrayed as either indifferent to humanity, uh, or overtly hostile. And um, what you almost never see 
but for about three or maybe four examples over the last 60 years, is any depictions of the human type beings that people consistently report and have consistently reported since the 50s. These so-called Nordic beings are almost completely absent from Hollywood's representations of UFOs and extraterrestrials, um, as well as the other different types of beings that have been reported, these sort of light beings and other um, yeah. slightly more amorphous uh, beings. Uh, none of those uh, really feature heavily in Hollywood's narratives, and that could simply be because, well, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, the writers might think, well, Everyone knows what an alien looks like, and they don't look like us. Therefore, it must have, you know. So, <laughs> yeah. let's, so let's not let's not do a film about Nordic human-looking aliens, you know. And, and this is the same thing, you know, with um, with the Hollywood adaptation of Travis Walton's Fire in the Sky story, where, of course, famously Travis reported seeing not only these grey-type beings, but also in the same craft, uh, presumably, the, or at least in the same experience, uh, these Nordic beings. Uh, classic Nordic beings, and of course in the film you only had these these kind of monstrous, uh, uh, shriveled, yeah, uh, <laughs> little goblin things that, uh, <laughs> that basically just tortured him. There was no no uh, reference there to these these human beings, and uh, you know, and you can see why that kind of decision might be made uh, from a uh, creative perspective because you know how do you if if you're not if you as an audience are not versed in ufology, it's going to be kind of baffling from a generic perspective. Yeah. All of a sudden throw in humans with, with greys because in popular entertainment that's just not done. That's not what we expect to see. Um, and so it would be quite a radical move for them to do it even if it has been reported. Right, right, right. So to just to sort of make your story cleaner, if you will, for the, mm, exactly. for the, for the audience, more palatable because they're just going to be They'll just, you know, it'll be distracting to them, in right. a sense. Yeah. That's precisely it. That's precisely it. Um, but the other thing um, that Hollywood has completely sidelined, or it, it, perhaps it's not, perhaps that's unfair. Perhaps it's yet to yet to embrace it or, or to 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 look at it in any way, is uh, is this idea of exopolitics. Uh, I've I've never heard the term exopolitics um, used in any Hollywood entertainment product. Yeah. Film or TV, despite the fact that exopolitics is, uh, has had a huge uh, influence on, on literature and debate in ufology over the last, well, at least five six years, um, probably longer uh, since since the new millennium, really. Yeah, yeah, um, it's been like a decade long phenomenon. Right, yeah. but uh, but they've yet to catch on to it. They've yet to kind of use it as a narrative device in any kind of way, whether in a derogatory ter- fashion or. Or, 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 you know, embracing it. They've, they've just not really had any comment on it at all. And again, it's not surprising because probably doesn't make for very good entertainment. Right, right. You'd have to like, do like a Law and Order type show. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm not saying it couldn't be done. It could, you know, it could be done. It, you know, it would, it would have to be a very sophisticated show, and you'd have to have some serious talent behind it. But it could be a great show, in fact. But uh, you know, you'd be looking at having a, a show like The Wire with, with, uh, with, with exopolitics. Um, or, you know, that level of, of uh, sophistication. Right. Um, but what most people prefer, or, you know, what writers prefer to do with, with UFOs is stick to firmly established and generic conventions. Everyone knows in Hollywood, when you write a UFO film, you write your characters as being either, you know, geeks who are, who drive around in, Winnebago, in Winnebago's, which are kitted out with, uh, anti-government spyware technology and they wear tinfoil hats and they, they, you know, and it, it, you know, right, they live with right. their mums in the basement, and that's the UFO geek, and that's what Hollywood likes because you know 
again, it's all about stereotypes, and that's how that's how entertainment works. Exo politics doesn't really fit the mold, um, and it's kind of dull. <laughs> you know, right. It, it's uh, and it's also kind of it's not particularly effective. Um, I, you know, I hate to say that. Uh, I'm not saying it can't be, but at the moment, it's not particularly effective. It consists of forming and signing petitions, which no one really pays any attention to. Right. It's like a model UN. Right. It's like when the adults right. decide to get involved, all the right. people in the all the people in exopolitics, which is the model UN, are just going to get pushed out anyway. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a shame, but well, maybe it's not a shame, but you know. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's debatable. <laughs> but, you're, but you're but you're right. No, that's I think that's exactly what will happen. I feel like the preponderance of bad aliens just speaks a lot to the culture anyway. That, that you I have do. to have an enemy in a sense. You ha- and with the Cold War over and and terrorism being too real for people. The world's a smaller place, so you have to invent it, an enemy. Almost. Well, Hollywood loves its bad guys. You know, aliens have always been the ideal bad guys, especially you know since the um, the dissolution of the Soviet Union in uh, 1991. You know, that signaled the formal end to the Cold War. Hollywood has really struggled to find its new enemy nation. You know, its new bad guy, yeah. a guy who it can vilify and demonize um, without fear of, of political or, or religious consequences. And uh, and whose role as this you know malevolent subversive invader can't really be questioned. Well, you know, in the absence of that, we've we've uh, you know Hollywood has always fallen back on on uh, on aliens on on the extraterrestrial menace. And uh, you know, from the thing from another world in 1951 to you know invasion of the body snatchers, the fourth kind, battleship, you know, trust the aliens and their you know their dastardly ways. And 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 all of that is perfectly fine, of course, because officially aliens don't exist. And therefore, you can't offend them. <laughs> you can't stir up hatred towards them. You know, so you can't. You're not worried about political reprisal from aliens because technically they don't exist. So it's not like you can. You know, you're not worried about offend. You know, whereas you know, episodes of cartoons can be censored because you know you fear offending Muslims. You know, you don't need to worry about that with aliens. You can portray them as however you want because technically they don't exist. But I wonder, again, in this hypothetical post-disclosure world. Uh, if the truth finally out, you know, Hollywood may well be faced with fresh, you know, fresh um, uh, accusations of racism and, uh, and xenophobia. Uh, you know, will will the industry attempt to redress, you know, its 60 years of alien bashing after disclosure, or will, you know, will, will its demonization of um, of these uh, of these beings go into overdrive? I wonder. Uh, it's an interesting idea. Right, right. Well, be in a way, it would be kind of disappointing in a sense because. Once we know what the aliens look like, that'll eliminate all the other cool depictions of aliens. Right, right. Well, exactly. What does what does Hollywood do then as an entertainment industry? I mean, assuming the, assuming society doesn't completely fall to bits and Hollywood right. Hollywood is a thing of the past, you know, assuming at some point films are going to continue to be made, how then do they depict extraterrestrials? Well, that's an interesting idea. Um, perhaps they'll you'll get a new level of realism and, um, and naturalism and, and, and documentary. Uh, style filmmaking where you, you have aliens portrayed as they actually are, as they actually appear, um, trying to explore their nature in a more direct way. Um, uh, and, and they'll become less fantastical, perhaps, because obviously they're no longer science fiction, they're science fact. Um, but perhaps, I, I suspect, even if that were the case, they might then invent new, new fictional aliens uh, to, uh, you know, to explore other aspects of, of uh, extraterrestrial society. And also, as you say, Hollywood always needs its, its, uh, its bad guys. So if the ETs turn out to be as you know lovely as can be, then they'll still keep making films probably about evil aliens because who's to say there aren't 
those out there too. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't think the human race will ever fully trust the aliens anyway, even if they were super nice. So I feel like it'll be always sort of a, a, a ten, tense relationship. Maybe, at least certainly for, I mean, absolutely crazy hypothetical scenarios here that we're discussing. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, That's what we know, do here. Uh, probably, uh, you know, I would like to think that eventually the this trust would, would fade away. But I, obviously, if there were some kind of a disclosure scenario and it were uh, the earth-shattering kind that Hollywood depicts uh, or that we've speculated about in our UFO community, um, then obviously... Society as we know it is is pretty much gone. Uh, it, it just is, um, and uh, it will take a while to to rebuild that, to 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 reconnect the dots of our reality, and uh, to reassess our, our place in the universe. And uh, but I would like to think that at some point that uh, you know a state of harmony could be reached. I hope so, but I'd be weary of the aliens at first. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it would be crazy not to be, I guess. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of that probably is from the movies, too, you know. It's, right, you well, know, exactly, not... this is it, you know, I just wonder if we, you know, we don't live in a, in a cultural vacuum, you know, when we see in this hypothetical disclosure scenario, uh, let's take the, well, you know, what, what does, what does the first contact scenario look like? Well, most people, especially if you've grown up in the, in the 50s, 60s, most people would automatically call to mind the famous landing scene from the day the stood still of 1951, you know, where you have uh, uh, Klaatu and Gort exiting this classic flying saucer and and uh, wanting to speak to the United Nations. And that's the classic, uh, you know, take me to your leader, uh, kind of a we come in peace yeah. uh, scenario. And uh, and these these ideas have become ingrained in the popular consciousness. And, uh, and I think it's going to be impossible to divorce Hollywood's depictions of UFOs from the reality with which we're presented. Um, and again, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, uh, probably both. Um, because not, not entirely bad because most, you know, as I'm looking at in my research, a great deal of Hollywood's representations have been very closely informed by supposedly factual literature and debate. And so there may in fact be quite a bit of truth ultimately, in, in Hollywood's collective science fiction uh, UFO movies. Yeah. Um, obviously, it's mixed with a great deal of fantasy and speculation, but ultimately, there are kernels of truth in there. And so, you know, it shouldn't all necessarily be dismissed, um, especially in films like uh, Paul David's Roswell of 1994, 95, 94, um, and, um, uh, well, all sorts. I mean, Travis Walton's, of course, was, was essentially based on a, an allegedly true account. But, yeah. Uh, with distorted, and there's been numerous others. Whitley Strieber's Communion film, and uh, and many many others. But then, of course, you've got the absolutely outlandish propagandist products like Battleship, which came out last year, uh, uh, this year even, and um, uh, you know the Transformers movies, where they're just well, on the surface of it, they're completely crazy. But again, the Transformers films are interesting because they were very closely supported by the Department of Defense and NASA and multiple other government branches. Um, and their scripts were uh, uh, significantly shaped by the government. Um, and they should, you know, right, uh, you know, rightfully be viewed as propagandist products. And they do uh, put out a certain image, uh, well, a certain, uh, a certain concept of extraterrestrial contact. And uh, they, you know, they absolve 
the government of complicity in, a, in an ongoing UFO cover-up. Um, there's a very interesting scene in the first Transformers film from 2007 in which John Voight, who is playing the Secretary of Defense, uh, learns for the first time that uh, all of this uh, alien hardware and bodies have been stored uh, on ice for, for, for decades. And this is the first he's heard of it because it's all been suppressed by a quasi-governmental group called Sector 7, which is clearly a nod to Majestic 12. Yeah. And uh, so it's sort of the DOD putting its hands up and saying to audiences, look, it wasn't us. You know, we, di- we didn't know. Don't. So when the shit hits the fan, if I can say that. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> when the crap hits the fan, um, you know, don't lynch us because it was those guys. It was these guys who were acting above the law. It wasn't the Secretary of Defense. It wasn't the Department of Defense. We didn't know. And uh, I think that's very interesting. Now, was that like was that inserted by them, or was that already in the script? Or I guess if, if, if they, they had, you know, I guess there's sort of a tacit approval there, right, I guess? The scripts are approved. The scripts, um, any film that has Department of Defense cooperation, the scripts are submitted to the Department of Defense. Uh, constantly, and the DoD has its staff writers. They literally employ staff writers in Hollywood, in the uh, on the 12th floor of the um, Oppenheimer Building on Wilshire, Boule- on Wilshire Boulevard, which is where the government is based in Hollywood. And they have their staff writers, dozens of them from every branch of the government, uh, writing scripts, uh, uh, censoring or highlighting lines, dialogue, saying maybe change this to that. You know, but it would be better to write it this way. How about this idea? Put that in there. And if you want their cooperation, if you want access to their their battleships, their, uh, their tanks and their troops and their advice, then you basically have to do what they say. And if you don't, then they, they, they withdraw their cooperation and your film ends up costing a lot more because you have to create everything from scratch in a computer and it loses some, uh, some of its realism. Hmm. That's interesting. And, it seems from some of the stuff I've read of, of your work, it's like it seems as if uh, it's less like they're trying to get involved in the UFO thing and more aimed at sort of portraying this image of gov- of, of military might and and try and boost uh, enrollment and that kind of stuff. It seems like they have a much different agenda than what people might think. I think the UFO thing. Uh, from in terms, well, you've got different like you've got different levels of involvement as far as the UFO subject is concerned. I believe um, when the Department of Defense uh, is involved in films, whatever whatever genre that film is, whether it's science fiction, thriller, drama, and the Department of Defense is involved in a film, its official uh, mandate is to uh, portray a, a positive image of the Department of Defense and of the military in order to boost recruitment and uh, maintain retention of personnel. So it's, it's you know, it, it's kind of old-school propaganda, and they're quite open about that. They don't really disguise that. Yeah. They don't call it propaganda. I mean, that's what it is, but they, they sort of say, you know, it's, it's a PR exercise. They're about boosting recruitment, and that's what they want to do in Hollywood. Um, as a peripheral thing, what happens is when, when the DOD gets involved in UFO movies, yes, first and foremost is what it's doing is it's trying to encourage recruitment and retention of personnel. But at the same time, obviously, you have to tread carefully when you're involved in a film about UFOs, given your history with the subject. The DOD, of course, has a very tangled history with UFOs. Um, the Air Force closed its Project Blue Book in 1969, and officially that was the end of that, and the government has never been involved in UFO investigations since. 
Um, so you have to be careful what kind of script you're endorsing uh, as the Department of Defense. You know, uh, are you going to allow, are you going to work on a script? Are you going to lend your support to a film that explicit, explicitly criticizes the military and explicitly depicts the military as being involved in a massive UFO cover-up? No, you're not. And if the film does contain those elements and you still want to lend your support to that film, then obviously you're going to suggest certain changes to the script. You're going to say, well, why don't you, why don't you blame it on Sector 7 instead of the Department of Defense? <laughs> yeah. why, don't you, why don't you have this guy involved instead? Or why don't you blame it on that guy? And so that's, that's the process. That's what happens with, with military involvement. That's, but that's all of the overt, open, public involvement. Um, then you have the CIA, which operates in a far more mysterious way in Hollywood. Um, and that goes back to the 50s. Um, but, I mean, what you have with the CIA is beginning in 1995, uh, the CIA's entertainment liaison office was set up. And this was the first time in its history that the CIA uh, openly kind of well, it came out of the shadows and stepped into Hollywood and said, look, we want to help filmmakers to uh, more accurately portray what we do. Uh, order, <laughs> that's how they phrase it. <laughs> Sounds very sinister, the whole thing. Well, it, it is, frankly. Um, I would say that, but it is. It is very sinister. Um, and it's very misleading. Uh, so they have an open office, uh, called, which is the Entertainment Liaison Office, and they, they liaise publicly, shall we say, loosely, use that term loosely, with filmmakers in order to encourage, again, exactly what the DOD wants to do, which is they, they try to boost recruitment for CIA and retain personnel to portray a, a more glossy, nicer image of the agency. Um, and so they lend support and they, they lend advice and they, they don't have the hardware that the DOD has. They can't give the filmmakers tanks and, yeah. and you know, but what they can do is they can offer onset advice in order to make things more realistic, accurate, the CIA would say. Uh, and they can also grant the filmmakers access to the Langley headquarters where they can film the CIA seal on the floor and they can make it look more realistic uh, by doing that. Um, but the CIA, of course, what they do then is they, they have a, an advisor on set uh, throughout the shoot uh, and they, they are free to, to suggest script changes, to, uh, uh, you know, to kind of whisper things in the ear of various people in, in the production process. <laughs> Uh, enact all sorts of changes. Um, and what's, what's slightly more sinister about the CIA's involvement in Hollywood is on a great deal of the projects that the CIA works on, you, well, there's no credit at all. Like the, the, the audience is completely unaware that the CIA has had any involvement in the film. Yeah. If you were to... So they do it kind of off the record. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you go and watch Transformers, which was supported by the DOD... If you wait till the end credits and you wait till the end of the end credits, you will see a list of about a dozen names um, from the Department of Defense with thanks to Phil Strub, Colonel such and such, Major yeah. such and such, General such and such. And you'll see that the Department of Defense has officially been involved in the film. You can go and look at who those people are. Most people don't wait till the end credits or at least they don't read those those things. So most people are completely unaware that Transformers had DOD involvement anyway. But you don't even have that option with CIA involvement because in a great many of the... Uh, uh, instances of CIA involvement in Hollywood, the, it, it's kind of off the books. Um, so, you, you know, CIA has been involved in all sorts of projects, major film projects, 
Um, and the only reason we know about that is because the filmmakers themselves have spoken about it after the fact, but there's no reference to the CIA itself in the credits. So you're having this very secretive influence from an extremely influential uh, government organization uh, in, in, in what's supposed to be a, uh, an entertainment product. And if that's not sinister, I don't know what it is. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's creepy. It's, it's unsettling. Because you don't know, you really have no, there's no transparency there at all. No, there's not. I mean, sometimes they are credited, but uh, I think that more, most of the time they're not. And, and, then, and, then, and then that's the, and then that's the uh, official involvement. That's, that's what goes on through the public liaison office. <laughs> right? And then there's, but uh, what I'm writing about at the moment is, is there's, there's ample evidence to suggest that there's a much deeper program media manipulation that's uh, under the CIA banner and this is completely covert completely illegal um, and uh, extremely pervasive what is the influence what are they trying to do it's, it's it's difficult to make sense of now what I think is, is actually happening um, is again and this is based on documentation that's been, been released over the years and, yeah. uh, and based on various testimonies that have, that have come out there isn't a complete picture um, but for example, his his uh, you may have heard the name Chase Brandon in recent weeks. Yeah, um, it was relation to these alleged Roswell disclosures that, that Brandon was making. Well, Brandon mm-hmm. Brandon was the CIA's uh, official liaison to the entertainment industry for ten years, um, and he advised on dozens and dozens of, of film and TV projects. Um, some, sometimes uh, openly, sometimes in a, in a quieter way. Um, even the ones where he was openly advising, he wasn't subject to the guidelines, shall we say, as, as strict a guidelines as the DOD is subject to when it's involved in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a great example where Chase Brandon, uh, I don't know if you've heard of the TV series The Agency, which, was, uh, which came out uh, directly where it was actually filmed before 9-11 and it came out almost directly after 9-11 and it was a show that was entirely backed and sponsored by the CIA it was it was actually the brainchild of the CIA and it was a TV show that, that depicted the, the daily lives of the CIA a drama series a thriller yeah and uh, just a piece of propaganda basically um, but the advisor on that was Chase Brandon <laughs> and uh, he spent a lot of time with the show's creator a guy called Michael Frost Beckner and uh, Beckner has spoken to, to various people on the record over the years about, ha- about how that series was shaped. Uh, and he told uh, the, uh, the film professor, uh, Trisha Jenkins, who's an expert in CIA and propaganda, um, he told her that uh, Chase Brandon actually phoned him up during the production of the show to suggest a plot line for the TV series that involved these highly advanced biometric identification technologies. Um, and then when Michael Frost Beckner questioned Brandon about this, he said, well, is that really realistic? Do you really have that? That kind of technology, Brandon said, well, quote, put it in there anyway, whether we have it or not. Terrorists watch TV too. It'll scare them. <laughs> so, and then another episode, uh, Brandon actually suggested using a predator drone uh, a CIA predator drone, which yeah. is outfitted with Hellfire missiles, to kill a Pakistani general. And this was for an episode of the, of the show. He said, "Why don't you have an episode featuring a hell, uh, you know, a predator drone with Hellfire missiles and have it kill a Pakistani general?" And he said, he asked Beckner to, to quote, "See how it plays out. See how you can make it work." 
uh, one month after the show aired, uh, the CIA assassinated a Pakistani general using Hellfire missiles from a Predator drone. <laughs> and Beckner himself said, and I quote, I'm not a big conspiracy theorist, but there seems to have been a unique synergy there. And that wasn't the only instance of that happening. It happened on at least three or four other occasions throughout the uh, throughout the shoot of, of the series where Brandon would suggest something, they'd film it, and then it would happen in real life. So it's kind of like using Hollywood as a uh, uh, as a test, really, to see. It. I mean, it, it seems crazy. It seems like a it seems like a, a, a really strange way to go about operating. But but it, but apparently it seems to it seems to be a strategy tool for the CIA. Um, weird. So that's one, that's, so that's one reason the CIA has for Hollywood. Um, and then, of course, what the CIA is really doing in Hollywood is um, it's subtly manipulating hot button, uh, well, our perceptions of hot button national security issues. Um, it's, it's, you know, the CIA's involvement in Hollywood today is, is really not so much geared towards recruitment and burnishing its own public image like right. the POD does. It is to subtly manipulate our perceptions of, of, of national security issues. And it's also to project a very carefully constructed image of America and of, uh, of America's enemies as well, or its perceived enemies. And so today, uh, the CIA does this, uh, both with um, its official media liaison program, and it also does it um, uh, more, well, covertly, shall we say, through this uh, through this deeper program that it seems to have. And this program, by the way, when I talk about this deep program, this goes back to the 1950s. Uh, there were numerous examples throughout the 50s of the CIA acting covertly to influence the content of genre scripts. Um, this didn't come out uh, until decades later, so no one knew anything about it at the time, but there's been a great deal of academic research done on this now, and it shows quite clearly that the CIA did indeed uh, infiltrate Hollywood very successfully, just as it infiltrated the mainstream news media uh, from the 50s through to the 70s. Um, you know, the... Well, to give you an example, in 1953, you had an executive working at Paramount Studios uh, called Luigi Larashi, and he was the head of censorship at Paramount. And in his job as head of censorship, well, obviously he wielded a great deal of influence. Um, it wasn't known until decades later that Larashi was simultaneously a CIA operative, <laughs> master, and he was answering directly to a CIA handler, and all of his letters to this handler have now been uncovered. And uh, he was he was actively censoring and feeding scripts um, to kind of uh, well in line with the, with the CIA's uh, desires really with its ideological um, desires and uh, so you, you know it was kind of very it was very small stuff really it was uh, you know you had the Rashi censoring scripts because uh, there were problems of major problems obviously with race relations uh, well for most of America's history, but, um, uh, well, all of it, in fact, but especially, <laughs> but especially in, um, especially during the 50s and then 60s. And uh, what, so what the CIA did was they felt that the, the, the Soviet, they felt that the Soviet Union might actually try to um, exploit America's really simmering racial tensions yeah. for propaganda purposes. And so what they did is they tried to depict a, a more hum, harmonious image of, of uh, race relations <laughs> through through genre films, and so what you had was you had a um, uh, uh, well, Larashi describing in a letter to his CIA handler how he had managed to secure the agreement of um, Hollywood casting directors to subtly plant, and I quote, well-dressed Negroes into films, which included a dignified Negro butler 
who has lines indicating he is a free man, and that was in um, Sangri, the uh, 1953 film. Uh, there's a golf club scene in um, the Dean Martin, Jerry Lewis uh, comedy, The Caddy, um, uh, where you have, uh, where you had uh, sorry that was that was the that was the um, that was the caddy, and then you also had um, uh, a scene in uh, the, from the Western film in 1953 uh, called Arrowhead, um, and there was a scene in that as originally written, which questioned America's treatment of of, uh, of Apache, well, of Native American Indians, and uh, especially Apaches, where you have a scene of uh, an Apache tribe being forcibly shipped and tagged by the U.S. Army, and that was removed from the script um, at the Rashi's uh, bidding, basically. Hmm. Um, so you had these very kind of subtle changes being made to scripts throughout the Cold War, and, and these changes went on and on. Um, and you've got to ask yourself, you know, if they're making changes on that kind of level, on that very detailed level, on relatively, I mean, not that obviously these aren't minor issues, but, they're, but when it comes to, you know, um, you know, depictions of, of, uh, uh, of uh, colonial history, um, you know, what, is, is the government also at this point tampering with UFO scripts? Bearing in mind that UFOs were at the time an extraordinarily serious national security issue. Yeah. Uh, I think the answer is absolutely they were tampering with UFO scripts. If they were tampering with scripts from every other genre, then you can, you can bet that they were, they were tampering with UFO scripts. Um, it would be madness for them not to do so. The mystery missile off the coast of California. Something? Oh, nothing. I have a great fear that this is really something. The United States government has come out and said, and not quite definitively enough for me, said that this was probably, that is their word, probably an airplane. Probably doesn't make it. We both watched the event. I think this could be aliens. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. And this is, uh, it's very scary. The other thing, the missile went up. When does the missile come down? More importantly, I where does the missile come down? You this is something. put in a call to President Blair Underwood. I knew that you would think <laughs> that's right. that these beings were like that's 94% right. human health line. Whatever no, comes down this is nothing. Head. This is a movie promo oh, no, out of Southern California. <laughs> oh, no, 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 that's no, no, no. all it is. It's no, no, a no, marketing no, no. campaign reality. Yeah. It is nada. Absolutely nada. Wilbon's right. Nothing. It's falling off the table there. The missile's nothing. Wilbon gets the win. This was definitely something. I'm hey. This game. Let's jump to this part because I, I did want you to follow up on this. You said that you have like a criteria for a UFO movie, so at least uh, get that sort of on the record. Maybe we can dig into it a little bit. So, what, what do you? It sounds like you just saying you have a criteria. It sounds like there's some that are excluded or some that are certain or what. So, how, how do you how do you shape it down? My definition of a UFO movie is as follows. Any movie that taps directly into any aspect of UFO mythology or notably draws inspiration from ufological literature, incorporating into its plot references to frequently debated ufological phenomena, events, locales, as well as specialized ufological terminology. A UFO movie need not be about UFOs per se, nor feature traditional ufological iconography, but it will nevertheless often devote a respectable amount of its running time to the dramatization of imagined human-alien interactions, usually, though not always, in the context of a first-contact scenario in which the extraterrestrials assume the role of visitor-invader. In other words, the UFO movie frequently is concerned with the problems inherent from a human perspective in earthly encounters with extraterrestrials. So I basically don't look at space opera, so Star Trek doesn't really fall into uh, into my purview, under my purview. Yeah. I, I mean, 
there are certain episodes of Star Trek which would be classed as UFO products, um, and certain aspects of series like Babylon 5 and, and, uh, and, uh, you know, Star Trek do, uh, really tap into, into UFO literature. Um, but overall, they're, they're more traditional space opera. The UFO movie is where you have, gen, you know, generally speaking, first contact scenarios between humans and aliens and the, uh, political, cultural, uh, or otherwise dramatic uh, implications of, of that contact. Right, right. So you're saying, like, it doesn't just have to be something going on in space. It has to involve humans, too. It has to be about yeah. the relationship between humans and this mystery. Right, because that's what the UFO phenomenon is. It's, it's, it's our attempt to understand and make sense of this, this, this phenomenon. Right, right. So, so like, Star Wars is out. You don't really care about Star that. Star Wars is out. Because stuff that takes place in this fictional out, yeah, I, I see exactly what you're saying, yeah. Well, that's good. That parses down a lot of what, <laughs> what you'd probably have to look at anyway. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It would have just been unmanageable. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, of course, loads of films look at aliens um, in a space opera context. And um, having, having said that, I do look at um, – I've got a whole chapter in the book that I'm writing um, which looks exclusively at – alien contact beyond Earth. So it's looking at the mysteries of outer space, but it's looking at um, human contact in, in, the, uh, in the final frontier, essentially. It's not where, 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 the, that, where that contact uh, and the fallout of that contact is not restricted to terra firma, not restricted to the Earth. It's actually sort of, you know, so if you're looking at films like... Uh, oh Mission God. to Mars? Mission to Mars, precisely. Mission to Mars, you know, um, uh, Apollo 18, uh, films of that ilk. Yeah. <laughs> I, well, I, I tried not to, I didn't want to go into this and just throw like every, you know, all these movies at you and be like, well, tell me about this. What about this? You know, cause, uh, first of all, I, I find that I really don't, I'm, I, I give you kudos cause I find I don't really like UFO movies too much, uh, just because they're, I feel like they're either patronizing or, or, Poorly, you know, or the facts get all discombobulated. I agree. I agree. It's quite, it's an incredibly frustrating experience having to watch them all. I own, <laughs> I, I own pretty much all of them on DVD, and uh, and I have them all organised in chronological order, so I can see how the genre, the subgenre, has progressed since yeah. 1950 through to present day, um, and see what trends emerge. But um, uh, yeah, a lot of them are very tedious. Um, there are some classics, obviously, in there, but. Uh, uh, a lot of them are very tedious and very frustrating to watch as well. Right, but, right. Yeah. Um, but the one one movie that I did actually want to mention was this uh, was District Nine because I thought that was one of the rarest sort of UFO alien movies I've seen in a long time because it's a completely different take on. I've never seen sort of the alien as less than human. The alien's almost always portrayed as more than human, and in District Nine, it was the alien was below the human race it seemed like evolutionary wise or something it was very bizarre in that in that regard I wonder what you think of that well first of all the district 9 um will receive only limited mention in my work because it's not a hollywood movie it's a uh, it's a south african produced film oh, okay which is why it's so different and uh, so refreshing in many ways um uh, yeah so it's a south african film and of course it's a, a, a an apartheid allegory um a very blatant one um and uh, so, so it's a very political film, a uh, very interesting film. I agree, you, you never see them. Uh, well, 
the, what the only one, the only Hollywood product that I would remotely compare to that would be um, Alien Nation, of course, uh, where you had the aliens arrive and they have to integrate into society and mm, they're yeah. to do so because they're seen as as inferior or, or seen with, or viewed with great suspicion, at least. Um, so there was a similar thing there. Um, but no, uh, Blow Camp Neil Blow Camp's um, film District Nine was was very interesting. Um, uh, and then it, it actually did tap into into certain aspects of UFO mythology as well. You've got the idea of the government um, uh, trying to uh, understand and utilise extraterrestrial technology uh, to weaponise it, um, and so so you know of course there's all sorts of allegations about that uh, in the UFO field as well. Uh, so I thought that was quite interesting. Uh, yeah, what I also find interesting is how. Pretty much what you'll find in, in almost all UFO films, but not all, is uh, is the iconography of the flying saucer, and uh, or a take on the flying saucer. Yeah. So sometimes you'll get the classic flying saucer, like in the Day of the Still. Uh, sometimes you'll get a, a slightly different, you know, more more elaborate flying saucer, like in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, or a more elaborate one, like in like in um, uh, like we've just talked about uh, District Nine. Yeah. Uh, and 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 a lot of people try to take that basic. Uh, shape and make it really uh, extraordinary, but still holding on to that, you know, that motif. Right, the uh, saucer. <laughs> well, exactly, because people, because people have expectations. So, so, so the the UFO, I call it a subgenre because it really is. It has it has developed its own conventions over the years. Um, it's a distinct subgenre of science fiction, um, and we have expectations of of what a UFO movie is, even if we don't know, even if we don't think to call it a UFO movie. We kind of do have expectations about how the narrative is going to develop and what's going to play out, and uh, and again that that plays a huge part in uh, in programming us to you know for what to expect when when contact if if and when contact does occur. Again, I think it's going to be very difficult to separate our, our cinematic uh, memories from our from our real time expectations. Um, so, uh, which is what which you know which is really why I think that the UFO subject with regard to to um to hollywood is so significant it, it's an overlooked area hollywood's representations of ufos i think most people kind of push it to the sidelines in in the field of of, of ufo research because it is seen as as a bit trivial but actually i think that uh people really need to start looking at it much much more closely because uh you know as the world changes uh, with regard to ufos uh we can look to Hollywood's representations over the years and really probably pick apart how our expectations and perceptions have been formed and then in turn hopefully gain a greater understanding of what we're actually presented with. Now you raise an interesting point there. I never even think about these sort of things, but you say um, District 9, that's a uh, South African film. And being in the UK, have you seen... I know you look at the Hollywood movies, but you live in the UK, so I, I assume you have a... a you know, you... A UK film that only gets around in the UK uh, is hard for people in America to get. Do you know what I mean? Especially the TV and stuff. I mean, you know, the UK has a lot of great TV, and here it's it's very selective what we get to see of your stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, do you see a difference in the portrayal of of UFOs and stuff from things that are strictly in the UK? And I guess I'm going to piggyback that with the second with additional question here. Um, is there, do you think, the same sort of influence in the UK going on by their MI6, you know, to sway things in the, you know, in the public discourse? 
Good questions. Um, first part of the question was, uh, what were you asking there? Portrayal of UFOs, is it different from no. here in the America? No, the answer is no, um, because the UK, because UK filmmakers and the UK film industry, such as it is, it really isn't an industry, but what we have takes its cues from Hollywood, as do most film industries, um, to, to some extent. Obviously, we have our own style of filmmaking here, and we have our own, uh, you know, kind of genres almost, so mm. to speak. Um, but when it comes to um, blockbuster-type entertainment, we emulate what Hollywood puts out, um, because that's the only way we know how to do it. So you'll have films like um, Attack the Block, which came out uh, last year, which was the uh, British alien invasion film, which received, I think, very limited distribution in the United States, but was a very big success here, and it had critical acclaim here. Um, it was about a bunch of teenage thugs who uh, who have to fight off a, a, an alien invasion in a in a council estate uh, in uh, in London, in a in a city London, um, and so that was quite a novel idea, and it was successful. Um, but stylistically, it was entirely owed everything to you know to classic Hollywood filmmaking. Yeah, because that's what. That's the only thing we know how to how to do. We emulate what Hollywood does. So, no, the portrayals are no are no different. The aliens are are malevolent, generally speaking. <laughs> um, but, uh, and, but of course, I think a lot of people think that Paul, the film Paul that came out with Simon Pegg. Yeah. I think a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that's a British film. Um, and of course, the British film industry, well, the the the, uh, the UK government would tell you it's a British film, but it's a it's a British film only in name. Um, the film, the company that produced it, Working Title, uh, a lot of people think it's a British company, but it's actually entirely owned by um, Universal. Oh wow! So, so it's so, so it's not. It's an American company, and um, although it's staffed with British people, it's ultimately owned by an American corporation. Yeah. And uh, uh, the filmmaking, uh, the style of the filmmaking in Paul, of course, is classic Hollywood. Owes a great deal to Spielberg and all the Hollywood, the great Hollywood filmmakers. Um, and it's uh, you know set in America, uh, features a half American cast. You know you've got Simon Pegg and um, uh, oh my gosh, my brain's gone blank. I do apologise. I always forget that other guy's name too. The fact uh, I'm sure he's because <laughs> it's always Simon Pegg and the other guy. Um, but, I know. Uh, I feel bad now. <laughs> uh, but anyway, he's great in it. But um, oh yeah, he's excellent. He's he's good in all the movies. But. Um, yeah, so it's really not. We like to claim what we can as British because we we put out so few good films, frankly, <laughs> nowadays. Um, but uh, it's it's not really a British film. Um, but it's a good film, and it's uh, very refreshing because uh, it is one of these rare films in which an ET is portrayed uh, as being, uh, you know, benign, benevolent, if not necessarily hugely enlightened. <laughs> then at least. Not uh, not invasive. Exactly. Yeah. Now, what about that other part of the question? Do you think the government in the UK is is playing the same kind of tricks that the American government is? I assume they are. I mean, what what? Why wouldn't they? The, okay. Well, one of the reasons why they wouldn't, uh, I, I think that possibly that's gone on at points. One of the main reasons why they wouldn't, uh, in a big way, is simply because we do not put out enough product. Yeah to justify that kind of involvement and manipulation. You know, the I mean, you can probably count the number of UFO movies that Britain has put out on one hand, you know, in the last 50 years. <laughs> and uh, whereas Hollywood's pumping them out one a month or more than that at yeah. the moment. So there's not a great deal that 
intelligence agencies need to be monitoring uh, or, or, or seeking to influence from our from our end, uh, whereas it's an entirely different story in America. So that's that's really the overriding reason why they wouldn't necessarily be, be seeking to influence stuff because there's just not much stuff to influence. Um, as for MI6 uh, and other intelligence agencies' involvement uh, in the in British product, um, this is something that my colleague um, Dr. Matthew Wilford and I have talked about uh, on many occasions. Uh, we've always said we need to really look into this. We need to look into what's going on in the UK because we're so focused on America, and we never do. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, it, and, and the truth is, is that almost no one has. Um, I don't doubt for a second that uh, that, it, that it goes on, um, but uh, I don't think it's as pervasive uh, as as in as in America. Um, but uh, it's certainly worth looking at. But it's something that I just haven't, to be quite honest, looked at myself. Yeah. Well, you figure it's going on in a lot of places too. It's uh, oh yeah, of course. You know. I mean, the point is, is that uh, any government, any power structure is going to recognise the enormous uh, influence of cinema mm-hmm. on on the popular consciousness. They're going to recognise that people do take their cues for reality, for reality from from you know from media and, and frighteningly from entertainment media in, in a lot of cases. And so, if you want to control how people think, how people perceive you as an institution then you better get yourself involved in that industry and start tweaking. Uh, if you're not, then you're not doing your job. I know if I was in control of a, if I was some kind of a, a president, prime minister, or, or authority figure, I would want to make sure that, uh, oh, assume it, well, if I was of the uh, variety that we currently have who are all corrupt, yeah. I would certainly want to uh, to very closely uh, monitor and, uh, and control how, how the masses perceive me and my regime. And, uh, you, know, <laughs> you know, I mean, it makes Except, sense. No, I know. I just, I'm just laughing at. <laughs> I'm imagining you with the regime now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you know, it, it get, of course, you know, leaders from around the world have always uh, sought to to manipulate entertainment media for their own uh, purposes in all sorts of countries, and uh, you know. Uh, you look at Nazi Germany and their propagandists and their filmmakers, uh, and I mean, obviously despicable but genius at the same time with what they did and how they were mani- how they managed to uh, to manipulate people's perceptions of of, uh, of, uh, of their goals and, and what they represented in the world. And uh, you know, Leni Riefenstahl. Oh yeah, yeah. Who was Hitler's uh, sort of. Uh, well, Hitler's main filmmaker, really. Um, she's, although she was a Nazi, um, she's uh, uh, recognised and, and uh, by by many filmmakers around the world as being, you know, one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. And technically speaking, she is, and in a purely objective way, in terms of how she put stuff together, she she was she was a genius. Yeah, triumph of the will, right? Uh, triumph of the will is just astonishing to watch, but also extremely disturbing for obvious reasons. So it just goes to show how powerful a medium cinema can be. And, uh, you know, you've just got to watch who has influence over it. Exactly. You've got to keep an eye on who's behind the camera. Right, precisely. So, you know, so it makes sense that uh, over the years, um, uh, power structures have always thought to, to be involved in filmmaking and entertainment media. And, um, you know, in, in America, this goes back to, to, well, it goes back about 100 years. But um, especially in, in World War Two, when you had um, uh, uh, the president basically co-opt Hollywood uh, for the propaganda effort, and um, dozens of film.
filmmakers, biggest names in the industry, John Ford, um, John Wayne, uh, Frank Capra, all just willingly gave themselves over to the government and said, yeah, we'll make propaganda films for you, we'll make whatever you want, you tell us, we'll do it, it's all for the good of the country. And maybe it was, I mean, that's a, you know, that's up to, that's, that's up to individual interpretations. Um, but, uh, you know, the point there was that the government recognized that the way to reach people was through entertainment media. And uh, so don't be any, in, in any doubt that uh, uh, those in the corridors of power recognize the influence of, of cinema. Right, exactly. And once they got their tentacles in during the war, even if it was for good reasons, you can be sure that they didn't just pull out after the exactly. war. <laughs> exactly. They're not, not going to say, you know, well, that worked well. Let's, uh, you know, yeah, keep in touch. line under that and move on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, of course, and, uh, and and as I say, the CIA became very, very heavily involved in the early uh, early 50s, and uh, they maintain to this day that they have no involvement beyond their public relations office, beyond their Hollywood liaison office. But if you believe that, then well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So you've got you've simply got to be involved. You've got if you've got people, it, it's it's my view, and I'm I'm writing this up in a more articulate way than I'm surely going to voice now, but um, I I think it makes sense that uh, the CIA today has operatives, assets, shall we say, uh, at every level of the entertainment industry, uh, from top to bottom. Now, that's not to say that everyone in the entertainment industry is CIA, of course they're not. We're talking about uh, maybe a couple of dozen people in Hollywood, tops. Mm. That's all you need. Exactly. You, you, put, you have those people at choke points, at, at, uh, at uh, levels of influence, from top to bottom, and you can, you can make certain calls. You can enact certain changes and you can have the influence that you want to have. Um, you have a, a presence and, uh, you know, so I, I do think there is involvement. It's covert and, uh, and that goes beyond the, the, uh, the remit of its, uh, liaison office. Now, aside from what we already kind of talked about with, with regards to how Hollywood needs aliens or needs bad guys, if you will, what do you ascribe to this huge influx of UFO movies that we've seen in the last few years. I mean, what, is it something that is it something involving you know fear from terrorism? You think, or the the economy? Is it a situation like that where you know I, I, I studied film in college, so it's you know I, I'm reaching back here in in my mind, and I remember that you know they I think they were telling me back then that uh, you know during downtimes of the economy, gangster movies were really popular. I think and during the war it was like westerns or something like that. So I mean. Are we seeing this huge amount of UFO movies because of something going on in the culture, you know, beyond that has nothing to do with UFOs, maybe? Film studies uh, theorists would absolutely say that, um, and I don't discount that. Obviously, that's part of it, um, but people stress that too much, I think. Um, in the 50s, of course, in film studies, well, today, in film studies, people look back at the 50s and say, that alien invasion films, the flying saucer movies of the 50s, were a direct reflection of fears of communism and of the and of the uh, the atomic age of the bomb, you know, and they were manifestations. These aliens were manifestations of our fears of communism and, and, and nuclear war. Yeah. Um, sounds good. Um, and obviously, without question, some of the films were concerned with that as peripheral threats or even as overriding themes. However. People overlook the main influence uh, behind these films, and that's 
flying saucers. <laughs> <laughs> people were making films about flying saucers because thousands of people were seeing flying saucers. People were upset that, you know, the government was, was in a panic, absolute panic, as shown through declassified documentation. You know, there were military personnel were reporting these things flying at 27,000 miles an hour over their classified nuclear bases at Los Alamos. And, you know, they were absolutely terrified. They didn't know what these were. They knew they weren't Russian and they seemed to speculate, uh, although not explicitly, that, they, that these things didn't originate uh, on Earth. And in fact, the uh, estimate of the situation, which was drawn up in uh, 1948, uh, which Edward Ruppelt, um discussed in his book, uh, that concluded, this is the Air Force, the project sign concluded that uh, that it was almost certainly interplanetary uh, and the, most of the reports were burned. But, uh, you know, <laughs> and, and of course, Ruppelt saw one and, and reported on it. But, um, you know, the, the, they were terrified and it was a, you know, it, it swept the nation. Um Throughout the world, but especially America. So people, filmmakers were making fil- making films about flying saucers first and foremost because people were seeing flying saucers. It's as simple as that. Um, and, and yes, of course, the themes about communism were, were threaded in there, absolutely. Um, but we shouldn't, you know, discard the idea that, uh, that these films were just direct reflections of what was actually happening. So you know, the um, fil- the film critic and uh, author um, Peter Biskind who wrote Easy Riders Raging Bulls, he actually discusses the idea of allegory in alien invasion films of the 50s. And he actually says that, you know, he points out that you know, critics of pop culture always are quick to note that the, the other, you know, the, with the capital O in films, is always other than itself, which is to say that, you know, the pods and blobs right. 50s are always symbols standing for something else. Um, and, and obviously, to an extent, that's, that's, that's true. But Biskind, actually, to his credit, also argues that these uh, critics often um, give uh, science fiction B-movies of the 50s too much credit and that many of these films actually weren't allegories at all but were literal reflections of, um, of cultural preoccupations, i.e. flying saucers. Right. Um, suggest, you know, and he suggested that you know, if you want the preferred reading of many of these films, if you want you know, what they're actually about, all we have to do is look at what's on the screen before us. It's about flying saucers and that's what it's about. Um, and, and I think the same can be said today actually there there are, there, are, there are more flying saucer films being produced today than since the 1950s than in any other decade since the 1950s and in fact there are more being produced today than in the 1950s yeah. but there's never been this many um why is that well people are obsessed with ufo's people are becoming more and more interested not just in ufo's but in the idea of extraterrestrial life we are seeing more and more uh, news reports uh, scientific studies discussions debates um about the idea of, of ET life and the possibility, indeed the probability now, that we are not alone in the universe. More and more extrasolar planets are being discovered. The uh, scientists now estimate that every star in our galaxy, uh, and in turn every star in the universe probably, has at least one planet orbiting it. Um, and this is, this is an astonishing revelation. Uh, and it drastically increases the chances that we are not alone. And more and more people are starting to come around to the idea that hmm, maybe maybe there is other life out there and of course that's that you know that's uh that's that feeds the mind and certainly it's inspiration for hollywood creatives and uh so where do they go to for inspiration about alien life well they look at ufo literature um because you know scientific reports aren't particularly exciting but ufo literature is so they they mine the they mine the 
the, uh, the the literature. They, they, uh, you know, I, I interviewed um, the film director Andy Fickman, who directed Race to Witch Mountain, a yeah. 2009 Disney film. And this is a classic example. You know, he he um, he he was born and raised in Roswell, New Mexico. He's a self-described UFO buff, and he practically wrote the script for the film himself. And he told me that you know he he really actively put as much. Uh, ufological fact, shall we say, uh, you know, ufological debate into that film as he possibly could because he wanted it to be an educational tool, <laughs> strangely enough. <laughs> he wanted people to, to engage seriously with UFOs and he wanted it to be serious. Disney wanted the film to be very silly and he fought very hard to make it a little bit more serious, even though it's a family film. Um, but yeah, so, you know, so you've got real, real people from UFO community in there. You've got, you know, um, Willie Streber, you've got, uh, Roger Lear and others who appear in that film as themselves. You've got books on cattle mutilation appearing in there. You've got all sorts of debates and terminology like um, Moon Dust and Project Moon Dust, and you know, so it's a, it's a very interesting film from a ufological standpoint. And of course, that's because you know he, he's just looking at looking at the literature, um, and he's not alone in that regard. Many other filmmakers do this as well. Um, in fact, most of them do. And this is why this is why I say it's a cultural process. Um, the film which hardly anyone seems to have seen, um, called The Objective, which was released in 2010. Yeah, I don't even know. I've never even heard of that one. Yeah. It was directed by um, Daniel Mirick, who was one of the co-directors of The Blair Witch Project. Okay. And it's a film, it got, it got a theatrical release. Um, it's quite a low-budget uh, sci-fi about uh, troops in Afghanistan who, who accompany a CIA operative in Afghanistan on a secret mission to go and investigate strange lights. Um, uh, in the desert, and uh, they come across these, uh, I- well, essentially Indian vimanas, the, you know, the, the, the vimanas of, of folklore and legend, uh, of Indian mythology, and, uh, uh, you know, they, they kind of find these otherworldly beings, and it's this very mysterious, conspiratorial, sinister, spooky film. Um, and I, I also asked, um, the, the director, Daniel Merrick, some questions as well, and he, he told me that, yeah, he was directly inspired by, Eric von Daniken and the literature that he'd read as a, as a teenager and uh, absolutely he was all seeded in there so he was directly inspired by the stuff that's already out there um, uh, you know many others have said exactly the same thing um, however I do say, I do say I know, I'm saying this is a cultural process but at the same time Race to Witch Mountain did of course have covert CIA uh, input and so that does have question marks over it as to what exactly the CIA did and did not do with the script um, Andy Fickman told me that their CIA operative, um, who was acting in an off-the-books capacity, did make script changes, did request that certain ufological content be removed from the script, uh, but wouldn't specify what. Yeah, I was just going to ask um, you, what, <laughs> what didn't they want us to know? So, yeah, and, and of course, you know, there's, and, and, and the CIA advisor there actually designed the alien language that appears in the flying saucer at the end of the film, which is a bizarre thing for a CIA advisor to do. I mean, that goes way beyond their remit of offering impartial advice on matters of accuracy and authenticity. Why on earth is the CIA designing alien language <laughs> for, yeah. for a film? Um, I've got that on my blog. Um, you can see the symbols um, from the film. You can, you can check them out on the Silver Screen Sources blog. I wrote an article about that. But um, I, That's I don't weird. think there's only that much to read into it, but it's, it's certainly interesting. I can only come up with two possibilities that he's uh, sort of 
a weekend warrior artist of some kind that he that the guy finally had his chance to get his art in there or or some kind of message of some kind that's what I would assume, but I'm naturally conspiratorial, but part of me says yeah. you know that it, maybe it's a message in an alien language to the aliens, and they'll watch it and see it and and there is a know. very a very loose resemblance uh, between the symbols that he designed and certain imagery in some crop circles but that's very very loose and and the 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 the, uh, uh, the authenticity of those crop circles themselves is, is debatable um but uh there's also some morse code type stuff in there as well which i've put on the blog uh, which he designed which looks almost exactly like morse code part of it is blacked out strangely <laughs> redacted looks like oh and man then, and then the rest of it looks like Morse code, and I've deciphered letters, but no words, because it's not actual Morse. Because it's not actual Morse code. It's something that's like Morse code, but not Morse code. And you can decipher certain le- letters, but nothing else. So it could mean absolutely nothing at all. Yeah. It could just be for design purposes, but uh, it's interesting. Yeah, it could just be something. Yeah. Probably that's, nothing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, could just be something that was seated in the film just to keep us busy. Trying to code it, so who knows? Possibly, or I mean, who knows? Who knows? <laughs> but, uh, you know, so it's certainly an interesting subject. There's lots to get your teeth into on the UFOs and Hollywood front. Um, but uh, as I say, what I'm trying to do with with the blog and, and with the book is is really just to encourage people to more actively engage with Hollywood's depictions of UFOs and ET life, because um, and really, you know, to question how. Uh, and to what extent uh, our own understanding or lack of understanding of this phenomenon has been shaped by by Hollywood entertainment. Because I think when we really start to think about that, we think, oh, my God, <laughs> yeah. that's quite worrying. You know, we really should dis- disengage to an extent. Engage, obviously, with, with the content. Try to understand what messages are inherent there, how those messages might form, whether it be culturally or conspiratorially. Just be active spectators. And then to try and kind of think, well, if anything ever does go down in terms of release of information, we need to kind of put all of our cinematic memories uh, to one side and try and look at this with fresh eyes and think, look, what we know, what we think we know is probably very far from the truth. Yeah, I'd like to think that people would, though, be okay, like that they would be able to separate fact from fiction. Uh, although I, I would know. like to think so. Yeah. I would like to think so. But I don't think we would. I think, <laughs> I think I think even I would have trouble separating fact from fiction, and I I'm, I spend all day every day studying this. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I would have trouble separating fact from fiction. Um, so I think we all need to really start to more actively engage with Hollywood UFO movies. Um, what the, the idea of the book is that it serves as kind of a a reference, so that it's useful before and after disclosure. I do actually believe that there will be a disclosure type event. I have no idea what form it will take. Um, uh, it will probably be nothing like we expect, uh, but I, I just find it inconceivable that uh, we will, you know, that in 60 years' time, other people will still be sitting here having this debate about UFOs. I find it inconceivable. Yeah, yeah. I I have mixed emotions. I'm kind of in your camp in the sense that it seems inevitable that it's going to happen, but I'm just so frustrated with the, <laughs> with the waiting it out part, and and also con- and nervous because what if it happens? You and I are like the same age practically. What if it happens like in 30 years? You and I are going to be in our 60s, close. You know, it's going to be just, like I, I was on another show and 
I don't know. I mean, when I was a kid, I thought maybe you'd be able to go into space, but at the rate they're going now, it's, I don't think I'm going to get the chance now. Well, you've got to ask why we're not, why space travel isn't more freely accessible. That's because I mean, of the UFOs, I think. I, I would presume so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's an awful lot of classified uh, technology that goes on. I mean, regardless, I mean, take the take the UFO issue out of the equation. You know, private science is going to be vastly ahead of public science anyway, just from a defense and security perspective. So, um, you know, there are all sorts of problems that open up when space travel becomes, you know, freely accessible to the public. Uh, that's a security nightmare. Uh, if, if you, especially if you put the UFO issue in there. Um, so, yeah, that's an interesting one. Again, though, you know, I'm hopeful for the disclosure, but I think uh, the forced disclosure may be the, the only way to really for, yeah, for them to get out of this mess. I agree, absolutely. Um, I think it will be forced. Um, you know, what I... I mean, we're getting off into a slightly different discussion here. Um, but uh, on the disclosure front... Um, it's become such a loaded word, disclosure. But I do think that um, there's no there's no way that this kind of classified material can come out without doing irreparable damage to certain elements within the power structures of the world. Right. Um, like just shatter, you know completely shattering damage. You, you're going to see. You know, look from my perspective, the biggest fear that the powers that be, shall we say, for lack of a better term, have regarding UFOs is that they will be caught with their pants down, that something will happen, an event that's beyond their control. And let's face it, all of it's beyond their control. Right. Um, something will happen, Independence Day style, or hopefully in a nicer way, Close Encounter style, <laughs> yeah. um, that's undeniable that has tens of thousands of witnesses, hundreds of thousands of witnesses, captured on tens of thousands of cell phones, videos, goes on YouTube immediately, Fox News, CNN, they're all there on, on the scene, and there's no way to suppress it, and it's there. That's it. Done. What happens then is that very quickly, once we get over the shock and terror <laughs> or elation, what happens then is en masse we go, hey, U.S. government or respected governments of the world, you lied. Because you said all this time that you never knew anything about UFOs, but here's one over the city, so therefore you must have known about them. And then we go, well, well what about Roswell? What about all of these other incidents that have said to have occurred over the years? You know, what do you know? Tell us what you know. You've lied to us. Why wasn't this technology shared with us? Why we have a different world as a result of it? We want answers. We want to lynch you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, well, I don't think that's necessarily realistic, but that's their fear. You know, they fear for their jobs, potentially even for their lives, you know, if this information comes out because they are, you know, to blame or well, they're not to blame. And, and, to, and to be fair, they're in a very, very difficult position anyway. You know, you've got to sympathize with them to an, to, to, to an extent. They're in a very, very, very difficult position. Um, and uh, so what do they do? Well, there's not a lot they can do when, once their pants are down and they've been caught with their pants down. What they can do in advance is try to manipulate our perceptions of the phenomenon. They can try to manage our perceptions of the phenomenon. Um, and what they can do is try to absolve themselves of ongoing com complicity in a current cover-up. So, and I actually think we're seeing signs of that. And we've been seeing signs of it for the last few years. What you've had over the last five, six, seven years is governments around the world 
releasing UFO files. Granted, not spectacular UFO files, often quite mundane ones, but releasing UFO files, thousands of them, to the public through Freedom of Information Act and sometimes just, you know, of their own volition. Um, as I say this, today, as I speak to you, the UK government has just released another batch of, uh, of UFO files. Yeah. Um, uh, Canada's done it, New Zealand's done it, uh, uh, Denmark's done it, um, pretty much half of South and Central America have done it and are now speaking very openly and actively about UFOs. Um, everybody but America. <laughs> everybody, but Amer- everybody but America, and that's extremely telling, because, of course, they have the most to hide, and they can't tell a little bit of information, because once you open that door, it all comes bursting out. Right. So they're in a real pickle. Um, uh, and what, what, what can they do? I mean, you must keep them up at night. You know, the, the, the handful of people who have, who have information on this, I'm not saying that everyone does, of course, they don't. Yeah. Um, the handful of people who do, they're going to, I mean, it's the stuff of nightmares. And their worst fear is that something happens that makes them look like they're complicit in a massive cover-up and that they've been deceiving us and that they've never offered any information. So what these other governments have done, it's very clever, what the UK government has done, for example, and I've watched this very closely being here, is they've started to speak out much more openly. They've started to, uh, the, the mainstream media has, started to cover this subject much more seriously um, than it has done in previous years. And every few months we're getting batches of thousands, hundreds of, hundreds of uh, UFO files, all of which are being reported in the mainstream media and having news reports on, on, on BBC. And it's, it's what it's doing is it's getting people used to the idea that the government over the years has taken UFOs very seriously. They haven't ignored it, i.e. they haven't been negligent in their duties. They haven't been ignoring what could potentially be a defence threat. They've assessed the phenomenon, but they've concluded officially that it doesn't pose a defence threat and that it and that there's no direct evidence that it's extraterrestrial. So they've looked at it, they've not been negligent, we stress this, don't blame don't accuse us, <laughs> accuse us of negligence. But we've found no evidence of it. Here are our files. We've given you thousands. This shows to you now in the here and now that we are not concealing any information. Everything we know, you now know don't lynch us when this happens. That's what they're doing. I'm convinced of it, and it's happening around the world, and it's happening everywhere but America, <laughs> because they can't do it, because they're in this really bad situation. Um, so I don't know what the hell's going to happen, frankly, but it is going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's you know, I, like I said, I was hopeful when I first got into this, but ufology tends to, it's, it's impatient, I guess. I don't blame ufology for being impatient, but at some it point... It's impatient. It absolutely is. And you can waste your whole life away, um, you know, going, oh, it's going to happen tomorrow. It's going to happen You know, I, I don't necessarily even want it to happen because <laughs> assuming that, you know, there is something to this it, um, uh, you know, it would be so disruptive on so many levels that it's very tempting to just think, oh, let's just go on in our lives. Uh, anyway, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's quite distressing to think that your the life that you know could be uh, hugely disrupted um, for many many years or, or forever as a result of, of, of an incident that occurs you know in, in you know one day over over a couple of minutes and uh, so I, I, I don't know it's very interesting to, to debate and discuss do I think that we will ha- that we will know vastly more about UFOs and their occupants assuming there are occupants and I think the evidence shows that there are 
will we know more about this uh, than we do now in 5, 10, 15 years? Of course we'll know more because the passage of time will take care of that. But will we know vastly more? Yes, I believe we will. Well, that's a bold statement in a sense because I've always bemoaned the fact that I feel like we haven't learned anything in the last 60 years. <laughs> well, well, no, that's a fair point. We haven't ultimately learned a great deal. We know little. De- we, what we learn is, is little details. Yeah. Testimonies are mass uh, and uh, a fuzzy picture emerges. And the picture is still fuzzy after 60 years. I agree, there's not a great deal that's been learned. Um, but what I'm, what I'm suggesting is that I think that, that the acquisition of knowledge on this subject will uh, accelerate mm. uh, quite quickly, um, at least within uh, mine and your lifetimes. Um, I just find it inconceivable that it won't. And all of the signs politically point to it. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting situation too you know you talk about how the u.s is in a bind because of the because of the cover-up and it's like this has been going on for 60 years so theoretically we're either in the second generation or the third generation of this cover-up so you hope that i've always talked on this program that disclosure is sort of a generational thing as as people like you and my age get older and then we have kids our kids are going to definitely believe in ufos and it's going to keep getting more Till the till the overwhelming population just accepts it, and you wonder also if that happens in on the other end of the on the other side on the cover up side if they're if they you know they don't see what the big deal was that they had to cover this up back in the in in, in forty seven or whatever you know what I mean mm-hmm. you hope that maybe that's what's going on on their end yeah yeah it's uh, I don't know I mean it's as I, said, I, I, I mean to be honest I've what I've just said to you is as explicit and bold as I've ever been on this subject uh, in a public forum. I tend to be very reserved about uh, about the issue of disclosure and the, even the nature of the phenomenon itself. But uh, I mean, anyone who's ever read a substantial amount of my work will will certainly get the strong impression of you know that I consider your host to be uh, extraterrestrial, not necessarily exclusively extraterrestrial I know a lot of people get into debates about uh, yes they're not they're not human but they're not they're definitely not alien well you know it, it's, it's kind of a it's such a crazy debate <laughs> having anyway I mean you know look let's just stick with aliens for now because at least there's some scientific basis for their existence you know yeah exactly but we don't know about you know beings from the inner earth or we have really very li- limited understanding of, of, of what another dimension even means, um, let alone what beings could inhabit it and why they'd be coming here. And, you know, time travel, again, is another explanation that some people come up with. Well, you know, the strongest explanation of all of the wacky ones is the ET hypothesis for now. So let's just, yeah, as a working hypothesis, let's go with that one and uh, see what happens. But, um, you know, it's, uh, as I say, it's it's a, it's a, it's a a very important subject. I think it's going to become uh, a bigger focus for the mainstream media in in the coming years, uh, even in the coming months. As I say, it's in and out of the media constantly. Now. Yeah. Um, there seems to be barely a day that goes by now that a UFO story doesn't appear in, in a mainstream news, newspaper somewhere in the world or a video report doesn't appear. Uh, you could argue that that's been the case for the last 60 years, but... Um, uh, you know, if you study the subject, you'll notice that there really has been an intensity uh, uh, that's, that's like, you know, 
comparable to other other decades, really. Um, so yeah, it's I gotten better. It's the the coverage of the media uh, coverage of UFOs has gotten a lot better in, since I got in the field, <laughs> having nothing to do with me. <laughs> Just, <laughs> what I mean is, you know, the 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 giggle factor is still there, but it seems to be yeah. much less than it used to be. Yeah, I think it is, and um, you know, if you look at polls that are conducted, um, they do. Again, how accurately how accurate these polls are is debatable, but they do seem to consistently show that a majority of people believe in, in alien life, and uh, at least half of populations of major countries believe in UFOs uh, and believe that they're being piloted by extraterrestrials, and indeed believe that the government is involved in a cover-up. So there's a greater and greater acceptance of these ideas, and I suppose eventually you reach a tipping point. Something's got to give. Um, there's all sorts of stuff going on right now. Uh, behind the scenes, which, uh, well, <laughs> the fact I won't even, it's why I've just done this really annoying thing where I say, I know stuff that I can't talk about. <laughs> <laughs> so I won't even bother. <laughs> All right, I won't press you on that one then. <laughs> it's interesting in a way because you suggested or said uh, that, that, you know, people in the UFO community kind of dismiss the Hollywood connection. And it seems like it's interesting in a way that, you know, the academicians and, and people in intelligentsia that you talk to, uh, they seem at least more open to, hey, this is kind of an interesting thing to look at, but it's funny that the people in the UFO community sort of downplay it. You'd think that they would be all about it. But it, seemed, it doesn't sound like you're getting all kinds of heat from people about this, about your no, research. No, 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 I should clarify. The, the, the UFO community certainly isn't down on the subject, absolutely not. In fact, just the opposite, I think that people in, your, in the UFO community are really fascinated by UFO movies. By Hollywood depictions of it, but without, you know, putting too fine a point on it, most people completely fail to grasp what's going on. Because, you know, unless you've studied the industry or worked in the industry, it's very hard to know how the industry works, um, what uh, what types of influence are at play in Hollywood, how these scripts, how these how these films come to be, uh, and so, you know, most people just read into them far too much. Um, there's a, a tendency, I think, in the UFO community to automatically assume that every UFO film that comes out has an agenda and that there's a conspiracy behind it and that, you know, it's been directed by the head of the CIA. Yeah. I think that seems to be the tendency. Um, and that's a shame because it's not the case. But at the same time, um, uh, I think that people are quite passive, even though they're obsessed with... with, with uh, with UFO movies, they watch them in a quite a passive way. Um, whereas I, what I always try to encourage people to do is, is to watch films, any film of any genre, in, a, in an active way. Be an active spectator, engage with the film, try and figure out what influences are at play in the production process. Right. How long has it taken for the film to come to come to be? Who wrote it? What is their production history? What other films have they worked on? You know, it, uh, do they have any links to to uh, powerful corporate or political institutions? Um, and what does, if so, what does that tell us? Is there any is there any bearing on the content of the film? These are the things I look at, and and I just think it's important for people to recognise that to step out of this uh, of this uh, aura of, of of mystery that uh, that that movies in general and, and that UFO movies uh, project. And to step away from that and to look at them for what they are, they're products. Um, uh, and they are, they, they are the, the product of, of hundreds of, of individuals who have worked on them. Um, they are the product of corporations 
sometimes the product in part of government institutions. Um, but they are, you know, they are in many ways influencing directly how we perceive and understand uh, or misunderstand the UFO phenomenon. And I just think that we really need to work hard to see them for what they are. Um, for, you know, ultimately they are silly little imaginings, really. They look great. They, they, they entertain. Sometimes they don't. <laughs> Battleship. Um, but, uh, you know, we need to see, to see these movies for what they are, to step away from them, and to just recognize that, look, the reality of this phenomenon is almost certainly very different to what's being projected to us uh, in celluloid form. And, uh, and that, that's it, really. It, it, it's, uh, it, it's simply trying to encourage a greater recognition uh, in the public that, that these films are powerful, they are influential. But once you understand how they're constructed and the influences uh, play in these films, then they become less mystical and you can kind of step back and say, ah, I understand, I get it, and let's forget what they've said because really it's not that, it's not that important. Yeah, exactly. It's about looking at the storyteller as much as the story. Mm-hmm. Um, now you've talked about uh, well, I guess, uh, I mean, I'm sure people are pretty familiar with the blog, but talk a little bit about it, because you've got some great uh, guests. Obviously, you've got some great stuff on there, and and uh, and not just about, it, it's sort of like an on, like constantly keeping an eye on what's going on in Hollywood with these UFO movies, but you've also got some good articles there by yourself and a lot of guest writers, too, so I guess talk a little bit about, you know, what people can find there. Well, I set up um, Silver Screen Sources, which is a blog um, looking at uh, news updates, commentary, and articles on Hollywood UFO movies. I set this up uh, in February of last year, and it's quickly become really quite popular. Um, and it's, it features fairly regular updates on what Hollywood is putting out uh, in terms of UFO movies, UFO entertainment, TV series, uh, films. Uh, it provides links to to all of those films and to kind of keep people updated on how those films are progressing, reviews, how those films are received, yeah. uh, commentary on those films for myself and from others. Uh, it also features uh, a list, a very extensive list of pretty much every major or every important UFO movie uh, that has been released since 1950 through to present day in chronological order so people can, can refer to it. I've really set the blog up as a reference for people so people can actually use it as a resource tool Yeah. Um, so they can kind of put the pieces together for themselves. Um, it's got my definition of a UFO movie on there. It's got um, uh, hundreds of posts that you can look at on, on uh, UFOs in Hollywood, and it's also got a number of uh, guest articles. Uh, I've got the likes of uh, Paul David, Linda, Malton Howe, Nick Redfern, Grant Cameron, Jim Mars, Ken Thomas, uh, you know, I've got uh, Nick Pope and uh, various other people on the blog, uh, Miguel Romero, um, and so it's uh, it's a a very uh, in-depth look, really, at, at Hollywood. It's, it's, there's a book's worth of material and then some on the blog, so um, it's yeah, all out exactly. there for access, really, and I'd encourage people to, to really spend a few hours looking at it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. A few hours, a few days. It's exhaustive, folks. So you should definitely check that out. And of course, uh, you've been talking about the book that this, that this work has spawned, uh, obviously of the same title, Silver Screen Saucers. And I, I believe you said you're hoping to get it out in the springtime of next year, right? So I guess talk a little bit about what people can expect when they, when they eventually get their hands on it. 
Um, well, uh, without giving too much away, um, it's uh, it's going to be about eight chapters. It's going to be an easily manageable book. Um, it's going to be something that's not enormously uh, uh, convoluted. It's going to be split into uh, themed chapters. So uh, how I'm approaching it is rather than write a strictly chronological narrative from 1953 to present day, yeah. what I'm doing is breaking it up into um, different themes. Nice. So I'm looking at, for example, a whole chapter on alien invasion movies. So both from a benign and uh, sorry both from a a, a quiet invasion and uh, an overt <laughs> invasion so you've got the quiet invasion films like um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers and, and gosh dozens of others they of live they live these are the secret quiet invasion films where the E.T. is invaded by stealth and then you've got the, the you know the invade the seek and destroy type ones where you've got um, Independence Day yeah. and uh, and uh, Skyline and, and hundreds of others mm. um, so the whole chapter on that very lengthy chapter and then you've got a chapter on benevolent visitation so E.T. Close Encounters Cocoon all of the the, the films that have come out over the decade showing E.T.'s in a more positive light Um You've then got a chapter on, what have we got, uh, abduction, ancient astronauts, uh, disclosure, the idea of disclosure. I've got a whole, whole film, a uh, secrecy, excuse me, a whole chapter on, on Hollywood's representation nice. of secrecy surrounding UFOs. And then a whole chapter on, um, uh, encounters in outer space. And so it's kind of broken into different themes, but throughout all of these chapters, I'm weaving the actual history of UFOs. So the book is intended for people uh, without any grounding in ufology. So it, it, it'll be of great interest to anyone who does uh, uh, study ufology or, 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 or UFO literature who is familiar with the subject. It's also going to be for the person who's literally got no clue about UFOs at all. You can pick up the book and you will learn everything you need to know about UFOs and the history of UFOs through film. So it, it's, nice. say it, it's the story of UFOs told through Hollywood's representations of UFOs. It sounds tremendous. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, there have been scant few books on the UFO Hollywood government connection. So it's time, uh, it's time for a fresh look at this. So I'm looking forward to getting my hands on it, uh, next spring. Yeah, it's been, uh, it's been about 14 years. There's only been, to my knowledge, two books ever written on the subject, which is baffling when you think about it considering yeah. how, how interested people are in the subject there's only ever been two books written on this subject both of those are 13 14 years ago um and so there's, there's been a as i say a tremendous amount of films produced in that time so you could write a book just about the films that have been released in the last 10 years um but this one will cover from 1953 to present day but it will also be vastly updated from, from the previous two books. Nice, nice. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, usually we end on what's next for you, but it seems like that is what's next for you. So, Yeah, well, we're, we're also, I mean, the other thing is we're, uh, I'm working with Bryce Zabel. Um, uh, Bryce is going to be writing the forward for the book, and Bryce is also looking at uh, adapting the book into a uh, TV series. Nice. Either as a special, like a one or two hour special, or as a or as an eight part miniseries. Um, so yeah, we'd be looking at, at looking at that take, taking that to TV. So that's another project that, that's in the works. Awesome, awesome. Well, I look forward to that as well. I hope, good luck with that. It's a difficult uh, road to travel down. But we need more good UFO TV because there's nothing good on there on the TV now. So I agree. I'm actually not a fan of Falling Skies. Um, 
I think it's very formulaic, uh, very predictable, in, especially in this age of, uh, it's not a bad series by any means, it's perfectly watchable, but I think in an age where you've got stuff coming out like The Walking Dead and The Wire and Game of Thrones and a great, great TV series, really sophisticated writing, um, Falling Skies is, 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 uh, is very safe, very formulaic, and, uh, and uh, it's a little bit <laughs> especially from Steven Spielberg, from someone of Spielberg's caliber who gave us such great stuff with Taken and Band of Brothers and uh, another series like that. Yeah, yeah. You wonder how much if he just put his name on it and walked away. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, well, on that note, I thank you for coming on the show here, Robbie. It's been quite the conversation. I enjoyed it quite a bit. And like I said, I, I tried going into this without throwing 35 movies at you and, and wanted to sort of the movie discussion to happen organically and I, I'm glad that that happened and uh, we covered a lot of stuff that uh, I think people are really going to enjoy and I wish you the best of luck this is a, such an under discussed and under researched uh, area of ufology that it's great that you're doing the work and you're carrying the torch and you know you, you've got the light on this thing because if you weren't doing it I don't know who would be because nobody else even is taking a look at it, really. So, you know, kudos to you. You've done a tremendous job, and I look forward to, uh, you know, your future outbook. It sounds like, you know, you've got a real, you got a real big fish on the line here, and, you, and it's exciting to see what's going to happen as this whole thing develops. So, you know, best of luck to you, and, and once again, kudos to you for your fine work. Well, thank you, Tim. Thanks for having me on the show. That does it for this edition of BOA Audio Season 7. Big, big thanks to Robbie Graham for coming on the show and giving us so much time. For more insights from Robbie Graham, head on over to his website, www.silverscreensaucers.com. Check it out. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio Listener Feedback. And this time around on the show, it is devoted entirely to our most recent edition of the program featuring Kendall Carver discussing the stunning spate of cruise ship crimes. This episode garnered a wealth of feedback from the BOA listeners, overwhelmingly positive reviews of the show from the folks who tuned in. Just a brief sampling Kevin said, your latest show on cruise ships is one of the best shows you have ever done. Ken says, wow, best show ever, great show, and keep up the good work. And longtime BOA audio friend Jason Offit simply said, effing creepy, dude. So many, 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 many folks really enjoyed that episode of the program, and I am very happy that it resonated with the BOA Audio listeners to such a remarkable degree. And we got two lengthy emails from people with regards to the topic at hand, so let's feature their correspondences. The first one comes from Jet Magda. No hometown listed, here's what he has to say. The Kendall Carver interview was one of the scariest I have heard in several years of listening to your great program. It reminded me of something I experienced on a cruise that I took with my sister in November of 2003. It was a Royal Caribbean Majesty of the Seas, four-day Miami-Nassau-Coco-Key West trip. It was the first cruise I was on that was rough from the very beginning. I didn't really notice it until the waiters started dropping their trays at dinner. My sister became seasick and went to bed early, so I just went on deck and walked around but it was so rough that I avoided the rail. 
The next morning, I was back on the deck having a cigarette when a security person came around with a passenger printout asking if the smokers had seen this man. We all thought it implied a passenger had gone overboard, but there was no official announcement. It led to a complete change in itinerary, with no Nassau, Coco Cay, or Key West stops. Jet Magda. So there you go, folks. There's sort of a glimpse, in a way, of some of the weird stuff that happens on these ships that the average passenger probably has no idea about. As our emailer just recounted, the whole trip got uh, discombobulated, and no one ever found out really exactly what was going on. That is uh, really part of the overarching story that we discussed with Kendall Carver. I would love to hear more tales from people who have had similar experiences or even more troubling experiences, and I'm sure Kendall would as well. Next email comes from Michael in Wales. Here's what he has to say. I'm a long-time listener of your excellent show, and this last one shocked me. I turned 32 last week and have been on two cruises in the last five years, both to the Italian Mediterranean, both on the independence of the sea with Royal Caribbean. We did not have any problems and made friends with crew members, but I can tell you that there is resentment from them because many guests consider themselves better than the crew and act rude or shout at them. I have friends in Australia, India, the United States, and all over the world, so I learned respect long ago, but I could see some crew being pushed too far. Many of them are from poor countries, so witnessing gluttony on such a scale could be upsetting. Some staff admitted to me that they get as much as 80% of their wages from tips. They get around $200 a month and earn the rest through tips. My wife and I never had problems with any staff. We had a great time on both occasions but I am alarmed that I knew nothing of this subject. I am sure many of these instances may have been the result of holidaymakers treating the crew like shit. I once witnessed a woman throwing a drink at a waiter because he brought the wrong beverage. But these companies are hiring people at slave wages, so they are likely to pick up some bad eggs. Given the lack of regulation, it's easy to see how trafficking could arise. It would be interesting to find if crew go missing or if there are patterns to the crimes. On a lighter note, I have seen UFOs whilst on deck in the early hours. Great show, Tim, and a nice break from esoteric subjects. Don't be afraid to do it every so often. No more cruising for us. Michael in Wales. Another fascinating email from someone with some first-hand perspective on these cruise ships. I've never been on a cruise and am kind of terrified to do so, having done the lengthy Kendall Carver interview a few weeks ago. But part of me also kind of wants to go on one of these and explore the whole subject even more. And kind of like Michael did here, befriend some of the crew members and get some inside scoops. But, again, terrified. I'm afraid somehow I'd besmirch one of the crew members and get tossed overboard. So maybe it's best to leave well enough alone. And just to get meta here for a moment... I really appreciate that Michael pointed out that this episode was a break from the usual esoteric subjects. If you're a long-time listener to BOA Audio, you know we like to break away from the paranormal every so often. And it is something, I think, that brings out some tremendous additions of the program. Based on the feedback alone to the Kendall Carver episode, I can tell you folks that it was equally compelling 
to the very best UFO, Bigfoot, and conspiracy shows we have ever done on this program. So stay tuned for more off-the-beaten-path esoteric-type topics here on the show, because that's the stuff that really fuels my interest in the unknown. We've beaten the door down on a lot of paranormal mysteries. There's still many, many more to explore. But there's also these remarkable stories hiding in the cracks, like the cruise ship Crime Spree that we discussed with Kendall Carver last week. And it's my job as the B in BOA Audio to find those stories for the outstanding BOA Audio listeners. With that said, let's seal up the BOA Audio mailbag this week. Big thanks to Michael in Wales for writing in, as well as Jet Magda for sharing his cruise ship stories. And thanks to Ken, Kevin, and Jason Offit for sharing their high praise for the Kendall Carver edition of the program. If you would like to be a part of future installments of BOA Audio Listener Feedback, there are a myriad of ways to get in touch with me. Here are the big ones. You can write to boaaudio at hotmail.com or go to banalofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com and click the contact button. If you want something a little more interactive, you can join up at the official BOA forum, theusofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. We like to call it BOA's Paranormal Playground. Lots of great discussion there on the world of the esoteric as well as pop culture. Additionally, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter. Just punch in Benal, B-I-N-N-A-L-L. And that'll bring up my profiles. Feel free to befriend me, follow me, or poke me. It's all good, and I'd be happy to have you as part of my online circle of friends. And speaking of our online circle of friends, punch in Benal of America on Facebook, and you will find the official BOA Facebook page. It is there that I solicit input from the BOA audio listeners on potential future guests and topics. If you want to join in on the fun, like us. We're at 800 likes. We finally crossed the 800 barrier, but I'd like to get us to 1,000 before 2013 begins. So if you have not yet done so, please like us on Facebook. Up next, let's thank the outstanding and esteemed BOA staff, Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Richard Thomas, Marla Pena, Bruce Pretty, Tony Morrill, and our webmaster, Jeremy Boston. Since the last time you heard from me, we have two new columns at Benal of America. Regan Lee takes skeptics to task in her newest Trickster's Realm, titled The Prove-It Game. And Leslie made her long-awaited return with an all-new Grey Matters titled Fittingly Catching Up, where she updates us on what she's been doing over the last few months. And we've got a few new columns in the till from the BOA staff, so be sure to check out Penal of America for more insights from the BOA writers. Normally this is the time in the program where I would turn to the hardcore BOA audio listeners and ask them to make a donation to the BOA franchise, but I simply cannot do that since it's been a month since you last heard from me, and I have spent the month working 
at various gigs trying to make money. Seems kind of counterintuitive to ask people to make donations when I haven't produced anything for them in the last few weeks. So hold on to your wallets, make a donation in a few weeks or months when we provided you with even more BOA entertainment. I totally understand and I would not feel right asking for donations when things have been cooking off-site and not at the BOA franchise. On the next edition of BOA Audio, we are going to embrace the creepiness that is the October Halloween season as we welcome Christopher Balzano and Tim Weisberg for a conversation on their new book, Haunted Objects, Stories of Ghosts on Your Shelf. Chris Balzano has appeared on BOA Audio a handful of times in the past, and Tim Weisberg is co-host of a very popular radio program here in the Bay State, which covers the paranormal and has graciously welcomed me a few times as well. So they are veteran investigators of the paranormal, and they're going to be discussing the haunted object phenomenon. We're going to try and unwrap that riddle. Are the objects haunted, or are they just tools of spirits lurking nearby. We're going to hear a bunch of cool stories about haunted objects and try and delve deeper into what is behind that mystery. Additionally, we'll talk about the state of ghost hunting and the nature of paranormal investigations. Turns into a spirited and lively conversation there at the end as we get meta on the world of ghost hunting. That's Christopher Balzano and Tim Weisberg talking about haunted objects, stories of ghosts on your shelf on the next edition of BOA Audio. That is the next scheduled edition of BOA Audio, but I should mention that we are on the verge, on the precipice, of beginning some live programming from Banal of America. It's very early in the process. I would like to do at least one episode in October to sort of kick off the live aspect of the show. We're definitely not going to switch to entirely live, but we will be doing some live programming to fill in the gaps between taped episodes and to sort of bring a different flavor to BOA Audio. So stay tuned for more information on BOA Audio Live And if you've got guest suggestions or concept suggestions for the program, shoot them to me via the means for contact that I told you about earlier in the show. And on that note, we close out this edition of the program. Big, big thanks once again to Robbie Graham. Big thanks to all the folks who wrote in on BOA Audio Listener Feedback. And enormous thanks to all you folks out there, the hardcore BOA audio listeners. You guys have supported this show through thick and thin. You put up with the interminable delays, which I greatly appreciate. And in turn, I try to provide you with the very best in esoteric audio programming. Thank you for your support of the show, and thank you once again for making BOA audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.